Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. Now, let's launch into the third installment of our epic series, The Fourth Golden Age of Rock, which covers one of the most transformative years of my life, and perhaps yours too, 1992. Here is Arturo Andrade to set us up. All right, so in the last episode... We delved deeply into 1991 and how it was year zero for the fourth golden age of rock. So many all-time classic albums were released. So many subgenres were kicked off. So many legendary careers were launched. And an overall changing of the guard in the rock landscape had occurred, thanks to the explosive crossover of alternative and indie rock into the mainstream. If that was the case for 91, the 1992 was all about the aftermath of the shockwave. Glam metal slash hair metal was practically erased from rock radio by the spring of that year, with Guns N' Roses being the only band vaguely of that style still being taken seriously. Thanks to the huge crossover success of Nirvana and soon afterward Pearl Jam, grunge had become a household word and a permanent part of the rock lexicon, also making its presence felt, both in ethos and aesthetically, in Hollywood, TV, and fashion. You also saw bands like R.E.M. and the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who went from more or less the rock fringe and or the underground to becoming chart-topping stars. But look carefully, and some other very important developments started to take place. Heavy metal seemed to be reeling from the grunge and alt-rock onslaught, but two particular bands, an unknown band from Los Angeles and an established platinum-selling band from San Francisco, reshaped and reformulated metal for the new decade and era by injecting it with hip-hop and unheard levels of aggression and socio-political fury, inspiring and influencing a multitude of bands in the process. Alternative and indie rock's jump to the major leagues didn't leave the cupboard dry on the indie level either. An, enig- an enigmatic band of wise-ass geeks from Stockton, California filled in the void in the indie vanguard left by R.E.M. to create a new, highly influential musical template for independent and alternative rock, as well as a new lyrical style fitting in with the disaffected times. You also had a classically trained musician who failed to succeed by riding the 1980s synth-pop bandwagon, and then she reinvented herself as a classic singer-songwriter and crafted an intoxicating, seductive, emotionally wrenching brand of sophisticated piano-based alternative pop that would influence legions of aspiring artists and open the floodgates for the female singer-songwriter boom of the 1990s. You also had the world's biggest band at the time radically reinvented their sound and rehabilitated their reputation with the previous year's album, but more importantly, their ambitious 1992-93 world tour broke new ground in conceptual presentation and visual spectacle, raising the bar for what a rock show can be and what it could mean. 
You also had the strong undercurrent of 1960s invention and idealism in 1980s Indian alternative rock that would bloom into a stronger overcurrent of 1970s audacity and swagger in the new decade and era. One band, barely out of their teens, emerged from the Southern California desert to graft a Black Sabbath on acid sound to a grunge attitude that would kickstart a new subgenre, stoner metal. Another band from Atlanta and coming off a multi-platinum debut record took their roots in 1970s hard rock and smothered them in a weed-induced blend of classic Memphis soul and southern-style blues rock, quite possibly outdoing their influences in the process and producing one of the greatest southern rock albums of all time. 1992 finds the fourth golden age of rock in full swing. Folks, let's relive it. So, Arturo, uh, Bill Clinton, the L.A. riots, and a whole lot of great music. Uh, welcome back to 1992, baby. <laughs> yeah. Before we uh, get into that, uh, we need to take our usual uh, delicate steps uh, into the tear in the space-time continuum. And welcome, everybody back to the parallel universe uh here again is where arturo and i tackle uh newish uh albums uh that uh, in a uh, just and fair world uh, would be huge and the artists would be the ones who cover rolling stone and you know uh, would be getting the million clicks on tiktok and etc 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 um We've kind of introduced this concept that within the parallel universe, there is a parallel vault. So we have that option of go back 10 years. However, we are sticking to the contemporaneous stuff uh, with our choices uh, this week. So Arturo, kick us off. Who who, who are you covering? Yes, the latest album by a New Zealand singer-songwriter who now lives and resides in Wales, Aldous Harding. Now chalk this one up to an album that reveals its idiosyncratic, eerie beauty after repeated listens. It took me about five or six listens, really, before I be, kind of became smitten with it. Uh, and I didn't want to like it, but I ended up liking it because <laughs> it's not usually the kind of music that I like. Remember, I'm the anti-Kate Bush person. Um, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, New Zealand-born Hannah Top, that's her real name, Aldous Harding is her professional name, released her self-titled debut back in 2014, and it am- amounted to nothing more than nondescript, generic, country-tinged folk rock. Uh, her second album, Party, from 2017, was anything but that, with one continuously slow, whiny, mopey piano ballad after another, low-lighted by her then-annoying habit of playing vocal dress-up, singing each song in an exaggerated character, ranging from high-pitched pixie to low-pitched cartoon character. Yet, something snapped into place for her between that album and her her 2019 critical breakthrough designer. It's as if she realized that there is nothing wrong with enticing melodies, catchy hooks, and stylistically diverse songs with interesting arrangements. God forbid. Um, (laughs) Designer could be best described as quirky folk pop meets skewered art rock. 
even her vocal character shtick got tempered a bit with a bit of the real Aldous Harding, quote unquote, finally shining through a little in her voice and her uh, impressionistic lyrics. So this leads us to her follow-up album for, for that one, Warm Chris, which, uh, yes, as in your name, Chris, Warm yes. Chris, <laughs> um, which is really a refinement of her breakthroughs on designer, but with even stronger songwriting, uh, richer arrangements that reveal a surprising debt to the late 1960s, early 1970s, Topanga Canyon, Southern Cali, you know, singer-songwriter scene, and even more enigmatic lyrics that sometimes lean toward the unsettling. Her vocal character personas are back, but they're better worked out this time around than in her previous efforts with a diversity and range in sounds and pitches that add depth and color uh, to the abstract stories that she tells. Uh, Standout tracks... Uh, Passion Babe has a very New Orleans-ish R&B jazz-influenced rolling rhythm that wouldn't sound out of place on an early 70s Randy Newman record, uh, <laughs> punctuated by... Uh, I mean that as a compliment. I like Randy Newman. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, I don't agree, but, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, well, because like I said, punctuated by an infectious chorus. I think it's infectious. With her pixie vocal persona maturing into something akin to an outsider folk singer. You have Fever, one of the singles off the album, is, I think, a tantalizing exercise in restrained soul music, highlighted by the jazzy flourishes of the stop-and-start horn section that really constitute this otherworldly bridge. You have TikTok, which has a swampy, almost funky, slide-guitar-driven groove that recalls Dusty Springfield's Son of a Preacher Man, um, but is lifted to the clouds by a... Harding's low pit, low voiced Southern soul persona, another of her new interesting vocal characters and her now patented, you know, sing along chorus. Um, it's clear that Aldous Harding has perfected a formula here and she's come a long way from the shapeless, rambling, empty music of her past. Uh, as of now, this is my number three album of the year right behind Big Thief's record at number one, and my Parallel Universe album choice for next episode at number two that I'm not going to reveal today. <laughs> Ooh, teaser. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, for, for, for what it's worth, uh, I'm hot, Chris, and uh, my, <laughs> my, my wife would agree. Uh, no, no, who knows? Maybe my wife's delusional, but uh, be that as it may. Uh, so uh, I will qualify this by saying I've only listened uh, to uh, this Aldous Harding record uh, one and a half times. So maybe this is a little harsh, but uh, here's my reaction. Meh. <laughs> uh, I'm unconvinced. I'm unmoved and I'm annoyed. And again, maybe I'm being dismissive, but here's what you need to know. Really? Uh, the song warm uh, might as well be renamed Mushaboom part two. Uh, when the ghost of Feist hovers, hovers over your work, uh, that's probably not a good omen. Uh, now here's a line from a pitchfork review of this record that, uh, it's very, very funny and very ridiculous and kind of makes no sense, but it's kind of perfect when you're looking at an album as like basically precious as this one. So author uh, of this review writes, uh, you have to learn how to listen to it, it being this album. Kind of like how you have to teach yourself how to read Samuel Beckett or Renata Adler. Gee, <laughs> nice gee, reference. Yeah. Gee, that sounds like fun. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, 
there's also the, the funny kind of you know, just surfacely annoying thing and and maybe it's a, a mental block, but she has the nerve to name an original song of hers. She'll be coming around the mountain. <laughs> and uh, tell you the truth, I'd rather suffer through the uh, the original one that we all know. Uh, this thing sounds like something from Neutral Milk's Hotel discarded demo tapes. Uh, it kind of is a uh, very dramatic uh, piano key uh, driven uh, warbler. Um, and again, like Any, you said, anything coming off of Neutral Milk Hotel's discarded demos sounds like fucking greatness to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I was, yeah, maybe you have a point, but like I said, this is like the deepest, darkest discard, uh, I guess, that I'm, I'm talking about. But no, I just, again, maybe I could, I'll give it a fair chance. Um, the voice doesn't convince me. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, she ain't Beth Orton, uh, she ain't Beth Gibbons. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot of drama there. Uh, it's this sort of clipped, uh, New Zealandish kind of, um, I don't know, almost kind of roughish uh, voice. Like you said, she does a lot of the, ah, and then, ah, ah, but at least it's more controlled, uh, from, I guess where she's been. Uh, but eh, like I said, you know, maybe I'll come back to this, but, uh, at least surface wise, uh, I'm unmoved. All right. Well, now we'll, now we'll move on to an artist that we both love very well. And I think we'll be more in agreement on this one. Uh, we're talking about Kurt Vile, uh, who uh, is growing uh, in stature and respect and may actually be on the verge of a kind of sort of breakout. And so uh, I want to uh, talk uh, about uh, his new album, which was just released four days before uh, we're recording uh, this episode. Uh, name of the new album is Watch My Moves. Uh, up front, I'll say that it is one of the prettiest albums I've heard in a long time. And there's a lot of great stuff on it. But the problem is, is that it's too long. Uh, I agree. I agree. I, yeah, I, yeah. Same sentiment. Yeah. I mean, 70, 73 minutes these days is generally not going to sit well with me. But it better be a magnus opus, uh, not quite uh, here. But it it does come close. Now, uh, here's my my thing on on Vile. Uh, one of the best things that I can say about this guy, who's a wonderkin from Philadelphia, Kurt Vile, and one of the things I can say about this album, Watch My Moves, is that it sounds like a Kurt Vile album. Yeah. Uh, normally, that's the kind of expression used to connote self parody or to point out uh, stuff like the Rolling Stones not being able to get away with making a really bad album in 1989 that uses the same template as the great one they made in 1974. Uh, nope, it's not that. Here, uh, saying that it sounds like a Kurt Vile album is still a very good thing because truly no one else sounds like this dude. Uh, he's just about the most singular artist making rock and roll music here in uh, 2022. Uh, listen a few times and closely enough, and you realize there's a method to the madness that this and that this guy is just remarkably talented. Uh, so how exactly can I describe that sound and by extension, the best songs on this new album? Uh, I want to quote uh, a line from uh, a Rolling Stone critic, a very good writer, very good critic, a guy named Simon Vozik Levinson. Uh, he used this wonderful line in his, uh, I guess, profile piece on Vile in the uh, latest uh, uh, issue of Rolling Stone. And he kind of captures what's pretty obviously a lysergic vibe. Uh, he yeah. says, 
Uh, it's been a few years since we've heard from our old buddy KV, and it seems he spent much of that time relaxing in his castle of chords, feeling the cosmic breeze, listening to the colors of the wind, and watching the time pass slowly. Wow, that's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I, that, that, I, that's pretty much untouchable in terms of writerliness. So, okay. So while Vile is probably dusted out of his head, to paraphrase an old Adam Yuck expression, uh, Simon has it right here. Uh, Kurt Vile does come across like our old buddy, you know, the shaggy eccentric dude uh, on another buddy's back porch uh, who grew up on a steady diet of Tom Petty and Neil Young and manages to make a few uh, Reverend Jim-style profound observation over the span of a couple hours. So, and also, you know, what colors are the wind? Uh, it's a neat cosmic question, and through hypnotic, hypnotic, endlessly stretching tempos, carefully crafted swirling guitar and keyboard motifs, and a speak-sing croak of a voice that this time out approaches a goofy falsetto in a few spots— Vile does make you wonder if he's taking a sincere stab at getting in tune with the unknown. Now, he approximated that uh, vibe or that feeling on 2015's Believe I'm Going Down. Uh, he did it again on 2018's masterful Bottle It In. I love that record. Uh, probably my favorite record of the last five years. And he does it again here on Watch My Moves. Uh, this time out, though, uh, Vile is taking some surprising risks. Uh but beyond that falsetto stuff I mentioned, he's also consciously sweeter, poppier, and weirder. Uh, it's as if he's working his ass off to make him sound this truly lazy. Uh, it, he, so what it does is it helps produce an album that's filled to the brim uh, with immediately sticky earworms. Uh, there's the jolly piano notes of going on a plane today, uh, which kicks off the album. There are the strings draping, uh, uh, Chazzy Don't Mind. And then you've got the jangly country riffs of uh, Jesus on a Wire. And then you have more than a few marvelous songs, uh, most especially the amazing psychedelic disco swinger like Exploding Stones, uh, which has actually gained immediate traction on the streaming sites. It's up to about a million five uh, uh, listens or downloads on Spotify. And it's threatening to make Kurt a bona fide rock star, or as much as one it can actually be these days. Uh, which, we, which means we can't talk about him anymore. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was going to say. But no, but, but yeah, for us, he, he still belongs to us. He's still on this side. But yeah, he's getting closer to the line. But anyway, I'm also a fan of the Beach Boy informed uh, Mount Airy Hill, Way Gone, Gone, which just has just this really just beautiful guitar part on it. Uh, there's also the oddly moving acoustic album closer stuffed leopard which yes is actually an ode to a stuffed leopard uh yeah this you know gotta love gotta love the stoners and then there's also a double take inducing cover of the bruce springsteen 1982 rarity wages of sin yep vile covers the boss and he makes it sound like a kurt vile song if you didn't know this was a bruce cover you truly wouldn't know it was a bruce cover and therein, lie, uh, therein lies Kurt Vile's gift, which, while it doesn't always work and can get a little tiring in one long sitting, is a blessing to the rock and roll of these 2020s. Now, Art, I didn't talk about much about the strange tripping balls lyrics on this thing. Uh, <laughs> any thoughts there? Yeah, I'll get to that in a second. First, I want to say this. Um, 
Kurt Vile, there are there are many moods and tones to Kurt Vile and his overall laid back musical persona. You got folky Kurt Vile, which you get in what I still think is his masterpiece, 2011 Smoke Ring for my for my Halo. You have psychedelic guitar sprawling. Kurt Vile, which you get on Waking on a Pretty Days from 2013. You get sensitive singer-songwriter, guy on a piano out in Topanga Canyon in the late 60s, early 70s, Kurt Vile <laughs> in 2015's Believe I'm Going Down. And you have groovy Kurt Vile, which you get in the album that you mentioned, uh, Bottle It In from 2018. Um, what Kurt Vile's never done before until this record, pretty. Like you mentioned, he's never done pretty at like like he has on this record, particularly in that stretch going from the, tr- the sixth track, track six, Hey Like a Child, all the way to track 12, Say the Word. It's some of his prettiest songs. Some beautiful stuff, some great arrangements, especially with the keyboards. Um, I like this record quite a bit. It's, re- it's a really good Kurt Vile record. But like you said, it is a little too long. And another thing... I want to attach a warning label to this album. I get, I'm, I'm st- I get the feeling he's starting to recycle himself a little bit. Uh, like there are some tracks that easily could have been omitted. I know you like the guitar work on Mount Airy Hill. I think it's one of the worst songs in the album with some of the dumbest lyrics <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and and his singing and his yodeling on it. It just sounds like a bad rip off of Mac DeMarco. You don't want to go there, okay? Yeah. Another now the lyrics. Ah, yes. Uh yeah. Okay. And in the album, bottle it in. There's a track. I forgot which one it is. Um, uh, where he mentions about he basically says in the lyric that he doesn't smoke pot, that he never touches his stuff. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and from, from what I've read, he's not really. I mean, he sounds and he looks like a stoner, <laughs> but but uh, uh, apparently he isn't really a smoker. That of that uh, kind of drug. But man, I have to wonder if he does LSD because even in Bottle It In, the song Bass Ackwards, yeah. um, he, he references him and his his DJ buddy being in another state of mind. Whenever yep. you're using the word mind in a song, it's usually about acid, okay? Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, and, yeah. Uh, There's definitely a few songs on here where he's at war with his brain. Yeah, and, he's, and and this album is quite a few songs where he's talking about another state of mind and smelling things that he can see and shit like that. You know, <laughs> you know? I was like, I'm starting to wonder if Kurt, because I know I know a Father John Misty, the the he's yeah. kind of famous now. Um, he, he does acid, he does them in small amounts. I wonder if Kurt Vile is kind of like doing some of that as well, like small amount, small dose acid, because it's really, really seeping into his lyrics. Not that yeah. there's anything wrong with that. Honestly, I, I wish you would do a full-blown acid record. <laughs> yeah, and, and to be honest, I think, you know, if there is some lysergic influence here, I think it's starting to seep into the music, too. I mean, like maybe like, like, like Exploding Stones, yeah. even like M- Mount Airy Hill, and like even like the stuff at the end, even like Stuff Leopard. I mean, just some of it is just... I mean, it's just some beautiful arrangements. And like you said, you know, Mount Airy Hill. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it's not the strongest song in the vile catalog. But yeah. man, is that thing gorgeous. So at its heart, our show captures the kind of windy, bendy, yet somehow organized conversation that you would have heard in a living room in Astoria, Queens back in 2000 and commits it to quote unquote tape. I now live outside of Houston, and Arturo lives in South Korea. 
So we are a worldwide affair, which means we truly do try to rock your world. Anyway, on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we do not do hot takes. We do honest takes. And we strive for the kind of depth and staying power that makes us just as relevant two years from now as it does today. We like to say we host the podcast made just for you. This belongs to you. Well then, who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. We not only celebrate the music, we live its majesty in full color and at full force. And we'd like to think that there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before along the way. Think we're full of crap? Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Have your own passionate thoughts? Become a member of our invite-only curmudgeonly community on Facebook at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. And be sure to tell a friend or two or three about the wacky dudes imploring you to listen to lost and forgotten albums and complaining about just how bad British rock critics are these days. Really, they, they really are that bad. Now, let's return to our regularly scheduled programming. So, now, uh, this is exciting uh, for me, like 91 and 92, Yeah, uh, I guess personally are like just the seminal years for my experience uh, in music. I mean, I can, even though I don't have a sense of smell, I can smell the memories still from 91 and 92, (laughs) which is what great music does. Yeah. Uh, and uh, 92 is especially uh, one of those years, just extraordinary output from a lot, a lot, a lot of people. And uh, so let's kick this off with uh, one of, uh, at that time, probably considered the greatest American band doing probably their greatest album. Uh, yeah. And which came uh, out of, it was kind of paradoxical that they came with their, their most, uh, haunting and gorgeous album at a time when anger and roughness was the thing. Right. And we're talking about the one and only R.E.M. and how they solidified their standing, in my opinion, as one of the 10 greatest American bands of all time with Automatic for the People, one of the most singularly amazing recordings in the history of pop and rock music. And I will prove it. So when R.E.M., or at least the three instrument playing members of the band, Peter Buck, Bill Berry, Mike Mills, when they entered the rehearsal studio in summer of 1991, their goal was to record demos of songs for an album that would be a harder rocking follow-up to Out of Time, their international multi-platinum blockbuster album that put them in the vanguard of superstar rock bands, after building on their crossover success of their late 1980s classics, Document in Green. We discussed this in the previous episode. The album that resulted from these jam sessions instead was a, or it still is, a timeless classic of orchestral folk rock that raised the bar for classic pop in a way that few of their peers or any other band of the decade could match, much less surpass. Um, When Automatic for the People emerged in autumn of 1992, it was one of those rare events when a highly anticipated album by a major band was not only rapturously received by critics as an instant classic and an all-time artistic peak for the band, but it was also met with the most widespread commercial success of their career. 
REM went from being the biggest and most important indie underground American band of the 1980s to not only standard bearers of American rock in the 90s, but arguably a place among the 10 or 15 greatest American bands of all time. For me, it's not arguable. Uh As for Automatic for the People itself, it has gone down as one of the most, like I said before, singularly and timelessly brilliant albums of all time. The one record in the band's discography that stands up with the best of their 1960s idols and influences, the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the Birds, and the Velvet Underground. The basic tracks were recorded in Woodstock, New York's legendary Bearsville Studios. Overdubs were done in Miami's Criteria Studios, with string arrangements by Led Zeppelin bassist John Paul Jones done in Atlanta's Bosstown Recording Studios. Mixing was done in Seattle's Bad Animal Studios. So with production spread across such disparate locations, it's really a wonder that the album is so cohesive and flows seamlessly from one track to the next. It isn't a concept record, a concept album, but it is a thematic record about death, loss, and mourning, underpinned, conversely enough, by the will and desire to live and carry on. Uh, It's a testament to R.E.M.'s collective songwriting craft and Michael Stipe's moving vocal delivery and poetic lyrics that an album about death can be so uplifting. What better way to start than with the three major singles, all of which reached the top 30 of the Billboard pop chart? Drive ranks uh, as one of the most haunting and beguiling album openers in popular music history, set to a beautifully languid arrangement of a pretty acoustic folk verse bleeding into a dirge-like electric guitar-led chorus Stipe's deadpan lyrical quote of David Essex's 1973 glam rock hit, Rock On, undermines the notion of rock and roll youth rocking on forever by reminding us that the ride actually does end at some point. You know, um, What at first listen seems like an endless list of pop cultural references, imagery, and conspiracy theories in Man on the Moon is actually a profound meditation on the quirks and eccentricities of life's journey, driven home by the album's most rousing anthemic rock chorus. And of course, there is Everybody Hurts. The album's most straightforward and direct song is also its most beautiful and elegiac. It's a classic and heroic torch ballad, and Stipe's yearning anti-suicide lyrics inspires some of the most soulful and powerful singing he ever recorded. Essentially, Everybody Hurts is Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water for the 1990s. Um, Add the swirling guitar and cello melancholia of Sweetness Follows, the dark sea chanty in Waltz Time, that is Try Not to Breathe, the gorgeous ode to lost youth, that is the piano ballad Night Swimming, and the stately, genteel back porch James Taylor supported by the band rumination on facing the challenges of adulthood that is find the river the latter two uh constitutes one of the most breathtaking one two album closing punches of all time um furthermore you add the lush sweeping pop of the sidewinder sleeps tonight the politically charged rocker ignore land truly an anomaly on the record but a needed respite from all the darkness and the greatest use of a bazooki on a rock record ever 
on Monty Got a Raw Deal, the closest thing the album comes to the raw, chiming folk rock of their early 80s murmur reckoning period and an ode to the closeted gay Hollywood icon Montgomery Clift. So what you get, take all of this and you put it together, what you get is, in my opinion, not since the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds has an album that came from the world of rock uh, captured the existential conundrum of mortality and loss, while at the same time reconciling them with coming of age and finding meaning in life as fluently or as beautifully as automatic for the people. One of the greatest recordings in pop music history, and in this curmudgeon's opinion, easily at least one of the 50 greatest albums ever made. It is the pet sounds of the 90s. Chris? Yeah, I pretty much agree with everything you just said. I think that it was important to note that I think you mentioned the two major themes that uh, I uh, have always gleaned from this album, which are Lost Youth, yep. and kind of kind of an elegy to Lost Youth, and uh, the acceptance of identity. I mean, or the, the elusiveness of or acceptance of identif- uh, identity. No coincidence that they have songs in there uh, about Montgomery Clifton and Andy Kaufman. Uh, yeah. Or, you know, these kind of fascinatingly elusive characters. Uh, and, you know, Drive. I mean, you basically I had you, basically you just basically you must have been looking at my notes uh, because I had the same thing. This idea of taking rock around the clock and rock on and converting them into a meditative dirge. Yeah, uh, that laments fading youth, and it's right. just kind. Of, it's kind of like this this desperate, uh, kind of uh, slow burning attempt to hold on to that. Right. Uh, it's just a really neat, uh, neat feat. Uh, there's there's a other couple other th- uh, comments about this record. Now you know there's a long standing tradition in rock of guys in their early thirties uh, lamenting that lost youth and coming face to face with their mortality. Uh, right. And uh, this album is very much steeped in that tradition. And that now I'm like, dudes, do you feel kind of dumb for being this foreboding when you were all, thir- <laughs> all 32? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, but hey, you know, I get it. You know, all men have uh, one crisis like that a decade, you know? Uh, maybe this was Stipes, uh, seeing how he was grasping the depths of his gayness and longing for meaning and reconciliation even more than he did on Losing My Religion. Right. Uh, I also uh, have a couple other things. I love Try Not to Breathe. Um, yeah. I, I, I listen about once or twice a year, I listen to drive and try not to breathe back to back, which is just yeah. an extraordinary one too. Uh, there's a couple of lyrics on try not to breathe that I've, I've always, uh, amazed me and, and, uh, stuck with me. Uh, there's the, uh, these eyes are the eyes of the old shiver and fold. Yeah. Uh, and then there's the, I need to fly over my grave again, Yeah, which is kind of morbid, but also kind of, you know, I, I need to like, get the fuck out of this slumber. Um, and so it's uh, pretty profound. And uh, I want to quote from a really strong retrospective review of the record. Uh, this guy named Stuart Berman, uh, apparently he is a very good and uh, kind of go-to guy for retrospective uh, reviews of old classic albums that he does for Pitchfork. And he did one uh, of these uh, for automatic for the people back in 2017, which would have been the 25th uh, anniversary of uh, this album. And so he writes, uh, for a band once so omnipotent and omnipresent that they inspired parody songs and comedian rants, REM occupy a peculiar place in 2017. Even before their official split in 2011, 
they have long ceased to be the headline-generating juggernaut that their benevolent rivals in U2 clearly relished becoming, yet they haven't retained the outsider cachet that their one-time peers in the Smiths and the Cure still hold, and their vintage t-shirts have yet to become staples of student attire. But if Automatic for the People is the ultimate emblem of a distant era where R.E.M. were the biggest, most important rock band in America, it is an album that, in surveying a fraught political landscape, the fragility of our mental health, and the fate of our planet, still speaks emphatically to our current condition. It's just that the dark clouds it saw creeping in on the horizon have since erupted into a violent storm. That is really good. Yeah, and, and like I said, it it just gets depressing that REM. Like, I mean, they're, they're a legendary band, but like, yeah, like, like, like it's almost like the younger generation of a uh, music fans just aren't as into them as like their peers, which makes me sad. Yeah, which is kind of their fault uh, too, because they they got a little long in the tooth, and there was just this precipitous drop uh, yeah. after after Bill Berry left. Uh, coincidentally, Bill Berry wrote the music that everybody hurts, which which always kind of boggles my yeah. mind, yeah. Uh, given that the rest of his stuff is the most rocking stuff. But uh, be that as it may, so that Berman uh, excerpt talked about this uh, accidental prophecy. Yeah. Uh, so we can now segue from accidental prophecy to intentional prophecy, <laughs> and uh, we need to uh, explore uh, one of the greatest um, musical introductions uh, of 1992, but maybe of all time, talking right. about Rage Against the Machine. Yeah. And, and so <laughs> we're pivoting 180 degrees opposite from automatic for the people here. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we are certainly not killing in the name of REM uh, here. And so uh, this is where uh, Raging Against Machine kind of perfects the hybrid of hip hop and rock or metal with their self-titled uh, debut album, Raise Against Machine. And then obviously, you know, it uh, creates a genre for uh, better or usually worse. So let's get into this. <laughs> Anger is a gift. Fuck you. I won't do what you tell me. Uh, now, for as passionate, as radical, and detailed as Rage Against the Machine could be uh, in its calls for revulsion, subversion, and the end of political oppression in the Americas, uh, it's their simplest messages that were the most revolutionary. Uh, yeah. there's, n that there's never, uh, ever been another band uh, that has earned a bigger platform to transmit the most uncomfortable, unsettling, and unrentling descent of all the masters, including those who paid out their royalties. And there's also never, ever, ever been a band so talented, so original, and so excessively intense that it could get away with that shit. Uh, so these days, when a Wall Street flag-waving dude bro expresses disgust on social media, that the mighty band that he grew up with, uh, banging his heads to his head to, uh, that, you know, we're talking about the, the same band that blasts at the end of, uh, the matrix turns out to be a bunch of socialist would be overthrowers. Now, when that happens, you have to tick your cap to Zach Della Rocca, Tom Morello, Tim Comerford, and Brad Wilk, uh, what rage accomplished was, and, uh, will always be unbelievable to me and one I'm not sure will ever be replicated. And it started in earnest here in 1992 with the release of Rage's self-titled debut, uh, a Stone Cold classic metal album that doubles as a Stone Cold classic hip-hop album. Pretty nice feat, right? Oh, yeah. uh, it's an album that really, to me, hasn't aged a day. And 30 years later, 
may be more relevant than ever in this age of actual insurrection and fascist attacks on Disney for defending gay people. Uh, For real, that's actually happening uh, right now in Florida. Now, why am I saying that? Uh, For starters, uh, this album, as we kind of hinted at, is effectively the birth of rap metal. More than the white boy funk of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, more than the spoken word ramblings of suicidal tendencies, more than cute one-off collaborations between Public Enemy and Anthrax, this was the real deal. Uh, Zach Della Rocca was a legit rapper, a California kid blessed with the power to rock the mic uh, with an MC supremacy and the flow to match. And Tom Morello was a preternaturally gifted guitarist who served as the interpreter of De La Rocca's musical vision. And for at least the first two albums, De La Rocca was the primary songwriter. A lot of people don't realize that, but he was kind of the, he was the best uh, musician uh, and songwriter in the band. And Morello really actually was one of the few guys in rock history who also extracted the untapped power of the electric guitar. Uh, And in Morello's hands, the guitar was a fat ass axe and two turntables and a microphone. I love this quote from Tom Morello that I found in my research. The electric guitar doesn't just has a, have a past, it has a future. Uh, and he that he's like the living embodiment of the meaning of that. So thus, on this debut album, we hear some of those squeak squonks, uh, pseudo scratches and textured grooves on stuff like uh, Fistful of Steel uh, and Take the Power Back and other songs uh, that became much more prevalent in later years. Uh, There also is the unescapable influence of racial identity on the band and on the album. Zach De La Rocca was a Mexicali mutt born in Long Beach, California. His grandfather was a true blue Zapatista revolutionary down in Mexico. Uh, His dad was a renowned Chicano muralist, as in the guy who like uh, uh, designed and painted murals. And this guy with this heritage wound up growing up in Irvine, California, the <laughs> Irv, the Orange County city, so traditionally racist that it was too white, even for my ruddy faced Irish American father who, <laughs> ba- who bailed the fuck out of there after an 18 month, re- month residency in the mid seventies. I actually was born out there. Not really a badge of honor, you know? So moving <laughs> on, uh, Tom Morello's background was even more exotic than that. Uh, Morello's father was Kenyan and fought in the Mau Mau Revolution in the 1950s. He went on to become Kenya's first ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, his mom was a, light, a white lady who taught English and taught her sons the, uh, son the virtues of a leftist worldview. Uh, Morello was born in Harlem, but grew up in an extremely white suburb 40 miles north of Chicago. Uh, he also earned uh, a degree in the wine and cheese fields of Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Is it a wonder that he was an avowed anarchist by the time he was 16? Don't think so. Uh, now, here's here's an excerpt uh, from an article on Morello that ran in The Independent, uh, the UK newspaper last year. Uh, and He says, quote, I was the only black kid in an all-white town, Morello says. Uh, he grew up in a particularly conservative neighborhood, baffled as to why no one else seemed to share the radical ideas he and his mom discussed at home. Quote, I assumed everyone was like that until I got to high school, he says, tugging on his T-shirt, which shows a Moomin protesting against fascism. Of course, this turned out not to be the case. Quote, so it was in me to always stand up for the underdog, to always stand up for the oppressed. Now, musically, uh, 
these guys, uh, Dale Rock and Morello, uh, their early journeys were just as diverse as those backgrounds I just talked about. Uh, Morello played in bands uh, or with one of Morello's high school classmates was Adam Jones of Tool. <laughs> yeah. And so so he did. He was in bands with Adam Jones. Imagine that. That must have been kind of freaky. Um, and uh, he also adored Run DMC. And he also dug uh, Black Sabbath. Really? No shit. Uh, <laughs> meanwhile, uh, Zach Del Rocca was more of a hardcore punk kid. Uh, so was his childhood friend, Tim Comerford, Rage's future bassist. Uh, De La Rocca vibed on Minor Threat, threat uh, Bad Brains, and similarly suited bands who had a lot to say, who said it loudly, and who said it with unwavering rejections of norms and rules. Much like Morello, De La Rocca was also an adherent of Run DMC. Uh, that sells the influence of Joey Simmons, DMC, and Jam Master J uh, about as much as anything. Now, uh, fast forward a few years uh, to Los Angeles, where Morello found himself choking on the dust of his dissolved band Lockup, which was on a major label and bombed, uh, and he was in search for a new band. And soon enough, two great tastes that go great together merged into what became Rage Against the Machine. Uh, these were two intense, uh, intense uh, multiracial guys blessed with the well-earned chips on their shoulders and who were ready to pummel the world uh, with their musical weaponry. Now, uh, mix all of that hip-hop influence and multiracial experience with unambiguously radical messaging, and you get something no one had ever seen or uh, never even came close to seeing. Uh, me, personally, I'm still flabbergasted by how elusive that messaging remained and how it escaped widespread scrutiny and serious discussion. To the MTV set, uh, that part of the deal was cute. Uh, for all of the intelligence that the soft-spoken De La Rock irradiated in his interviews, and for as articulate as Morello could be about the an advantages of fighting for change from inside the machine they raged against, a sea of white boy college kids uh, passed all over all of that for the badassery of the rage sound and the intensity of their live shows. Can't blame them for the latter. Uh, a 1999 rage PE show at the Roseland Ballroom in the fall of 99. Uh, 1999 remains the best show I have ever attended. Uh, even so, come on, folks. The 1992 self-debut album featured a black and white image of a Vietnamese Buddhist monk self-immolating in the midst of the Vietnam War in 1963. The video for the album's breakout single, that was the cover uh, of that album, the video for the album's breakout single, Freedom, is an explainer about the case of Leonard Peltier who was a, was a Milton militant uh, Native American activist and organizer who was convicted in the late 70s of murdering two FBI agents in a trial that his supporters argue uh, was tainted and or rigged by questionable presentations of evidence and bench rulings. Uh, in the years since, uh, Peltier has referred to himself as a political prisoner and his fight for clemency has galvanized leftists and radicals for years. So, yeah, you've got a burning monk staring down imperialism and very, very loud support for a controversial self-entitled uh, or self-labeled uh, political prisoner. How the hell was this missed by the masses? <laughs> I mean, white kids with disposable income are lazy slaves to the guitar, I suppose. Now, while 1992 was Rage's starting line, uh, they didn't attract widespread attention until the summer of 93. And it took a stunt during a Lollapalooza main stage appearance in Philadelphia to push that button. Uh, that day, uh, the members of the band, 
uh, stood naked, uh, kind of in a horizontal line uh, on the stage for nearly 15 minutes. They're butt ass naked. And they have the letters P, M, R, and C scrawled in their chests, a protein, a, a, a protest against the PMRC. Get it? Uh, by the end of 1993, Freedom, that video I talked about, the Leonard Peltier video, was plastered on MTV. And by the summer of 1994, the rage, the that this rage record that we're talking about was standard issue for college kids. We all had it. I mean, it was, it was enormous by then. And the slow ascent to the top of Rocks Mountain continued until they hit the top in 1999 and then quickly disintegrated among uh, descent. Uh, De La La Roca pretty much quit uh, uh, pretty uh, abruptly in disgust. Uh, He then went on to work on solo material with LP, Questlove, and others that never saw the light of day. Basically, it kind of became like the, uh, you know, like the Guns N' Roses, My Bloody Valentine thing is, you know, is Taylor Rock actually going to release something after 18 years or or not? It became one of those deals. Uh, Meanwhile, the other Rage guys formed Audio Slave with Chris Cornell. Uh, That band might as well have been called Machine Against the Rage. Uh, (laughs) Now, despite that abrupt uh, ending I, I talked about, Rage's legacy legacy is undeniably powerful. A lot of bands tried to replicate the brutally honest rap metal formula and failed miserably. Uh, P.O.D. most comes to mind. Uh, Beyond the musical detritus left in its wake, however, as America's descent into blatant rather than clandestine uh, clandestine fascism uh, rolls on, Rage's early music now sounds pretty damn prophetic. And like the score to the resistance in which we all will need to partake. Long live Rage Against the Machine. Arturo, I know this has been one of your favorite bands for a long time. What about them resonates most with you? Well, um, first thing, like I'm going to echo what you said. Um, a lot of their lyrical content, as left it, as leftist as it is, they really always focused on socioeconomic disparity, um, the plight of the poor, and racial identity. And that shit is more—it's more pertinent now more than ever. Absolutely, more, more than it was even back then. Which means uh, Rage's music, uh, at least lyrically, is has not only stood the test of time; it was prophetic. <laughs> you know, it, it, they were yeah. actually ahead of the game. Now that said, let us move on to our next segment. Already set us up. From Rage Against the Machine to a band whose frontman uh, is an underrated Rage Against the Machine fan. Stephen Malkmus actually is a fan of Rage Against the Machine. Did you know that? Anyway, um, yes, we are talking about Pavement, arguably the most important indie American indie rock band of the 1990s. They reinvent and re-energize American indie rock in the 90s by creating a new sound and a new lyrical language with their all-time classic debut, Slanted and Enchanted. All right. Now, when Pavement started out, they were basically a two-person noise pop project between Stephen Malkmus and Scott Canberg, hailing from Stockton, California, and finally getting together after Malkmus's stint studying at the University of Virginia and working as a security guard in New York's Whitney Museum of Art, their initial homemade recordings were lo-fi, raw as fuck, and indie beyond indie. Imagine Daniel Johnston with more electric guitars, punky chaos, and irreverent humor. (laughs) That's basically what they sounded like. Um, Their early EPs, 1989's 
Sleigh Tracks, 1933 to 1969. Yes, that's the actual name of the EP. (laughs) (laughs) 1990s Demolition Plot J7 and 1991's Perfect Sound Forever were released on Chicago's outtray indie label Drag City and gained a passionate following among hipster music critics, especially in the Village Voice and uh, amongst in some of the more prominent independent fanzines of the time. Seriously, as much as I love Pavement, even I will admit that music critics basically made that band. Yep. And Malkmus and company just wouldn't have had a career if the music press weren't sniffing their jocks from the very beginning. Yeah, they really uh, do kind of owe their careers to the Dean, don't they? They do. The eventual critical reception to Slanted and Enchanted was so deafening in its enthusiasm that it actually echoed what greeted R.E.M., a band basically no one had heard of until Rolling Stone magazine named their debut album, Murmur, the best album of 1983. Um, If all that sounds like a backhanded compliment, it is not. (laughs) Because you know what? The critics got it right with R.E.M. and they got it right with Pavement. Uh, those early EPs with underground classics such as Forklift, Spizzle Trunk, and Debris Slide, they capture a gestating band with a formula that characterized early pavement and could be described, as you, Chris, have done several times so, uh, for, for years, as, quote, good music done badly. Yep. Um, basically, underneath all the amateurish production lo-fi hiss, noisy guitars, and barely there rhythms. You had some terrific, blatantly pop melodies and earworm hooks that stayed with you long after you listened. Um, It was with this approach that Malkmus and Kanberg, now with drummer Gary Young, entered the studio as a trio in January 1991 to self-produce Slanted and Enchanted, all recorded in one week. Malkmus had grown as a songwriter by the time of Slanted, with his song structures becoming less direct and taking on a jagged, almost labyrinth-like feel to them. The lyrics, while at first seemingly surrealistically irreverent, were original in their imagery and their wordplay, uh, being subtly nuanced in their description of characters and emotions, even moments in time. Summer Babe may be indie rock's most joyously rocking anthem and ode to neuroses ever recorded. (laughs) Uh, Conduit for Sale with its ragged, jagged, angular attack and staccato spoken word nonsensical verses leading to the explosive, repetitive chorus of I'm Trying is the band's most obvious nod to British post-punk and indie stalwarts of the fall. Uh, one of Pavement's key influences, more on the fall later. Um, The slinky, slide-guitar-driven Zurich is stained, and the rousing, rocking Loretta's scars don't show much sympathy for the problematic women in Malkmus's love life, but uh, his wry humor and laconic vocal delivery, a Malkmus trademark throughout Pavement's lifetime and his own solo career, uh, carry the tracks over with a cool detachment. Uh, the end of a relationship ballad here, one of the album's key tracks that proves Pavement could do beautiful and pretty as well as noisy and punky, uh, provides the perfect example for Pavement or Malkmus's penchant for loping words that tumble over each other with wit and pathos at the same time. Great line, quote, 
I always dressed for success, but success, it never comes. And I'm the only one who laughs at your jokes when they are so bad. And your jokes are always bad, but they're not as bad as this. That's a perfect lyric right there. Yeah, um, no, that really is. That, that that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Upon its release in spring 1992, a whole year after it was recorded, as I said before, it was instantly praised by critics as an instant classic. More importantly, its effect and influence on the American indie underground was immense. Uh, much like REM before them, American indie rock can be described as pre-pavement and post-pavement. Uh, they made noisy, hissy, fizzy, lo-fi rock with palpable pop hooks, melodies, and sing-along choruses safe for all of indie rock to explore and capitalize on for the rest of the decade. Uh, Will Oldham's Palace Brothers Project, pre-Bonnie Prince Billy, Guided by Voices, The Mountain Goats, Early Beck, Early Modest Mouse, and Early Built to Spill are all among legions of bands and artists who were touched by the pavement bug and their yep. enigmatic, uh, idiosyncratic sound. In later years, pavement would clean up their sound as early as the follow-up to Slanted and Enchanted, actually, and be arguably just as inspiring and influential, especially the younger generation bands and artists in the 2010s, such as uh, Speedy Ortiz, Hooten Tennis Club, Alex G, Kiwi Jr., The Goonsacks, and Courtney Barnett. One notable artist who wasn't enthralled by Pavement was one Mark E. Smith of The Fall. One of Pavement's key influences during this early period of the band, not so much later on. Um, Smith, notorious for being one of the most obnoxious cranks in rock history, once called Pavement, quote, a ripoff that don't have an original idea in their heads. Well, it's been said that Eric Clapton expressed a similar sentiment when he first heard Led Zeppelin. All I have to say is, fuck Eric Clapton and fuck Marky e. Smith as well. May he rest in peace. Um, it's with Slanted and Enchanted, however, that Pavement made their careers and reputation. And it's the album that always comes up when they, any discussion of their immense legacy takes place. If they aren't one of the 10 greatest American bands of all time, they're certainly one of the 10 greatest American bands of the 1990s. And all five of their studio albums are worth listening to, ranging from good to flawless masterpiece. But Slanted and Enchanted is the place to start for the uninitiated. All right, Chris. There, there you go. So a few thoughts. Uh, I have definitely come to accept uh, slowly that Pavement was definitely the band of the 90s. Um, a few thoughts. Uh, anytime I... Think of uh, Conduit for Sale. The immediate uh, thing that pops into my head is Beavis. And uh, Butthead. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a famous Beavis and Butthead episode with Beavis singing the chorus while watching <laughs> the video, which is just fucking hilarious. Uh, <laughs> and we, we talk about, you used my line about this being good music uh, done badly. Um, I think that that's purposeful uh, here because this album sneaks up on people. Yeah. I mean, it's the kind of album when you first hear it, you're like, what the fuck is this shit? And then the more you hear it, it, like it really comes out. And like you said, you're extracting the song, like, you know, summer babe, you know, you're originally, you're hearing that kind of, you know, gnarly guitar and that like kind of, like kind of weird galloping rhythm and the kind of mumbly, uh, uh, vocal. 
but then you listen to it a few times, you catch on to the lyrics, you catch on to the structure and all that. And it's like, whoa, that's, that's pretty damn good. So uh, I think that that's uh, really uh, the most impressive trait of Slant and Enchanted. Um, one other thing that uh, occurs to me about this. So here in 92 is basically the explosion of grunge. Yeah. Uh, that's something that dates back to 87, 88, somewhere around there. Uh, maybe if you if you want to say eighty nine when you know Bleach and Ladder and Love are, are recorded, uh, and it takes you know three or four years, you plant the seed, it germinates, and then it becomes a full flown full blown tree. Uh, three or four years later, it's kind of funny that in the midst of the grunge explosion, here's this little tiny two man outfit from Stockton, California, doing this cheapy record that is like we we said ordained by Bob Christgau and other critics. Uh, they get that momentum, and lo and behold, by 1997, every other band on the Matadors of the world yeah. is doing their best impression of Stephen Malkmus and Spiral Stairs, <laughs> otherwise known yeah. as Scott Camberg. Yeah. So uh, it's it's a testament. So you've got one uh, movement uh, hitting its peak in the mainstream, and another sort of this sort of like you said jagged. Um, I don't know what you would call it. That sort of disaffected kind of Gen X uh, kind of you know, faux uh, detached is really what it was uh, with sort of faux detachment from Malcolmus that kind of became the thing that sort of defined five years later. So I think that one, one is at its peak, one is just beginning. And then by 97, one is falling into the sea and the other one is cresting. So interesting yeah. dynamic. Sure. Now, speaking of grunge, we got something for you for the next segment. <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. So uh, obviously when we're in 1992, uh, we'll be talking a lot about uh, grunge. Uh, this is the first instance uh, here. So um, we're calling this segment Dyslexic Hearts. Uh, 1992 uh, was the year that a whole uh, lot of angst paid off well for a whole lot of hard rock musicians especially those settled in the seat of the Pacific Northwest and those guys wearing flannels. Uh, These musicians uh, didn't start getting bored and old until a year and a half later. In utero references aside, uh, this is the year where grunge as we remember it happened. Uh, We talked about grunge's spark and the sticks of dynamite on our last episode here in the fourth golden age of rock covering 1991. But the combination of Nirvana's Nevermind hitting number one on Billboard's music charts in uh, January of 1992 and Pearl Jam's Alive and Soundgarden's Outshined hitting regular daytime rotation on MTV triggered the explosion of that dynamite. And then we were off to the trend-setting blood-sucking races. By the end of the year, the New York Times and JCPenney were firmly on board with Grunge Chic. Uh, that stuff is going, but it did have the magical effect of opening the gates for a lot of great bands and a lot of great songs to reach a lot of excited, untrained ears. Now, credit filmmaker and former Rolling Stone reporter Cameron Crowe for having uncanny timing of his discovery or embrace of the Seattle movement to serve as the backdrop for his movie Singles, which I think is one of his two or three dullest uh, films. Uh, The film hit theaters in the fall of 1992, and it told this story of love, dreams, maturity, and other puke uh, staged in a burgeoning rock scene. 
Now, to be fair, Crow's wife, Nancy Wilson of the band Heart, is a native Seattleite, but still. Uh, I did not rewatch the film for this episode, had no desire to uh, revisit the long-lost Campbell Scott. Uh, I didn't really want to relive it, but I do remember a pretty fun impression of a grunge front dude by Matt Dillon and guest roles by members of Pearl Jam as his bandmates. Now, luckily for Crow and the rest of us, a dumb tale set in an amazing revolutionary music scene had a really good chance of producing an amazing revolutionary soundtrack album. And indeed, the, the, sing, the soundtrack to the movie Singles, the single soundtrack, is the best soundtrack track, soundtrack of any movie of its era and one of the best of any era. I mean, think about this. Is there a chance in hell today that a major record label would release a soundtrack to a major studio film that begins with Alice in Chains' marvelously painted classic Wood and ends with uh, the uh, power ballad, uh, basically a rocking but somehow pow- hush power ballad by honorary ancillary ma- uh, grungers Smashing Pumpkins, uh, the song Drown. Both amazing songs. Those are the bookends. Uh, really, uh, that is just a relic from a long gone epoch. But what an epoch it was, and this album meant the world to me personally as a 17-year-old high school senior in Syracuse, New York, who spent an inordinate amount of time barking at the moon. Now, think about this one. Two of Pearl Jam's very best songs, Breath and State of Love and Trust, appear on this soundtrack. Again, this soundtrack. Uh, Chris Cornell's haunting solo turned Seasons Possibly his best ever song, Removed from Soundgarden, is on here too. And then there's the big curveball. We get two incredibly soulful, tuneful, and bountiful entries from from Paul Westerberg. Yes, Paul Westerberg, the guy from The Replacements, from a place nowhere near Seattle. But damn it, if that dyslexic heart and waiting for somebody don't align spiritually with the rest of the material here. Now, yes, Crow does manage to get an Ann Wilson sideband uh, into the mix uh, with a cover of Led Zeppelin's uh, The Battle Ever- of Evermore, but even that's pretty awesome. And finally, the glorious and forever grand Mudhoney sneaks into these proceedings with the Counter-Strike anti-Seattle as a trend anthem overblown. One of the things to me that connects golden eras are their ability to capture indelible moments in time and the accompanying emotions that remain suspended in our memories. And for me, uh, this single soundtrack does that better than just about any other collection of music. Uh, Arturo, any personal connections to singles that you can share? Uh, I do have a story. Uh, Go right ahead. And and I got this story from uh, Mark Yarm's uh, oral history of grunge rock book uh at the time when cameron crow was shooting the single soundtrack right uh um in 90 91 i think it was 91 when he was sh- uh, not the soundtrack the film he was shooting the film word had gotten out that there was going to be a soundtrack to the movie with seattle bands you know all the, all the local seattle bands were going to be in the soundtrack well um bruce pavitt and jonathan poneman the, the the twin heads of of Seattle's legendary indie label Sub Pop Records, the label that basically introduced grunge to the world, 
via Mud Honey and uh, uh, Nirvana and Soundgarden. Um, they got a hold of this, uh, this of this news, right? And they heard the bands that were going to be on the soundtrack. It was going to be Mother Love Bone, Pearl Jam, and Soundgarden, and all these other groups that were basically on the classic rock slash heavy metal spectrum of grunge. And they got a little offended that none of the sub pop bands <laughs> were were, were going to be on this soundtrack that's supposed to spotlight the Seattle scene, right? And you know the the punk spectrum of of grunge actually is what pushed grunge up out up front. Um, so apparently, Pavit, Poneman, and Mark Arm from Mudhoney went to visit Cameron Crow. They made their case that sub pop needs to be represented. There's not enough punk punk tinged grunge. It's all classic rock and metal tinged grunge. We need to have you know the original grunge in this. Crow agreed, and that was why Mud Honey's Overblown was included. Yeah, that that actually makes perfect sense uh, as to why. <laughs> uh, worth mentioning that uh, "Nearly Lost You" by Screaming Trees is also on this record too. Yes, yes. Uh, and so, basically, the best of the best of the best is on this record. Again, strikingly uh, top one, like five percent of some of these bands' catalogs being on this soundtrack is pretty remarkable uh, yeah. to me. We'll move on to this. Our next segment of why 1992 was such an important year uh, in the golden age of the fourth golden age of rock. Tori Amos emerges as this era's and basically her generation's Joni Mitchell with the exquisite little earthquakes. Suddenly, it was cool for heavy rock guys to be into sensitive female songwriters pouring their hearts over a piano. I know I fell for her. And yeah. uh, so did many others. Um, Tori Amos, yes. For those of you out there, uh, I'm sure you have a fixed image of Tori as this earnest singer-songwriter sitting at her piano, whipping out brilliant, emotional songs full of abstract beauty and poetic lyricism. For those of you who have that imagery, you'll probably find it shocking that Amos actually started her career as the front woman for a horrible new wavish synth pop group called Why Can't Tori Read? Why <laughs> Y is in the letter Y and can't as in Emmanuel Kant, K-A-N-T. Oh, that's just uh, awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, their self-titled album came out in 1988. To critical and commercial indifference, no surprise, and the band soon broke up. As Amos herself once famously said, quote, the only good thing about that album is my ankle-high boots. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Nevertheless, Amos still had five more albums to record for Atlantic Records as part of the deal she signed with them. It's a good thing they did not give up on her because her going back to the drawing board resulted in Little Earthquakes, a masterpiece of alternative pop that not only heralded the arrival of a major, unique, generation-defining talent, but also helped open the floodgates for the much-needed rush of female singer-songwriters in the rock and pop realm that would come to partly define the 1990s and, by extension, the fourth golden age of rock. Now, Piano-based pop music with a distinctly female perspective has been around since the time of Carole King and Joni Mitchell. But Tori Amos brought something new to the table when Little Earthquakes arrived 
in January 1992. The confessional bent of her lyrics and stark instrumentation and arrangements certainly harkened back to her likely influences and the singer-songwriter greats of the 1960s and 70s. But her lyrical imagery was more elusive and at times even more surreal than the painfully earnest directness of her forebearers. On Little Earthquakes especially, the dominant themes of sexual awakening and oppressive religious upbringing, sometimes combining to ruin romantic relationships, are presented in lyrical flourishes that aim straight for the heart but remain abstract enough to give Amos an edge that most of her influences, contemporaries, and later imitators could never match. Uh, No one but her could craft a song that was sexy, funny, disturbing, and moving all at once. She was a classically trained piano player, and at that, Amos also had the guile to craft exquisite melodies and masterful chord progressions that could soar to the heavens. Take all of that, throw in a richly versatile and enchanting voice, and you get a powerful artist and a powerful record that melted and continues to melt even the hardest of hard rockers' hearts. Crucify was the single that got her on MTV, and its incessant drive provided an anthem. Countless anguished teens and young adults yearning to leave behind troubled pasts. It's an anthem for them. Um, Silent All These Years was the big hit in the UK with what Amos described as that bumblebee piano tinkle, quote unquote, that leads one of her most gorgeous piano ballads, alluding to a trauma that may be about a romantic relationship, but could be about something deeper. Uh, Happy Phantom sees her in full-on surrealist mid-1960s Bob Dylan mode, uh, full of pop cultural celebrity references and led by one of her jauntiest tunes ever. Um, Leather harkens back to 1920s Kurt, not Kurt Weil, Kurt Weil in the German sense, Kurt Weil styled German cabaret pop, but manages to fit in seamlessly with the subtly diverse range of piano pop that Amos delivers. Uh, Me and a Gun, of course, is the album's most unforgettable moment and most powerful song with Amos uh, singing in acapella about the time she was raped. Tori Amos would go on to release a string of brilliant albums throughout the decade, 1994's Under the Pink and 1998's Electronica Tinged from the Choir Girl Hotel being particular particular standouts for me. But her immaculate debut album remains a watershed moment for female empowerment in popular music. Uh, by wearing her sensitivities and traumas on her sleeves, thereby turning them into strengths, Amos created one of the boldest and most unique pop music statements of all time, inspiring legions of female artists and singer-songwriters to follow their idiosyncratic hearts. It also sparked the fervent cult following she enjoys to this day. Uh, Most of all, Little Earthquakes is an essential entry in the canon of timelessly amazing all-time classic albums that constitute the fourth golden age of rock. Chris? Yeah, uh and I've talked a little bit about this on uh, back in the uh, uh, salad days or if of uh, the curmudgeon rock report, when we were getting off the ground, uh, I took a little bit of a poop on Tori Amos. Maybe that was a little yeah. unfair. Uh, it's just sort of personal taste. It's just sort of there's after a little while, her stuff becomes uh, 
uh, nails on a chalkboard for me, but I respect and admire the shit out of her. Um, I mean, her early output, you know, you mentioned some of it has some really amazing uh, nuggets and nibbles and she was just extraordinarily brave, uh, standing down, uh, staring down abuse of many stripes and shapes. You mending, you, you mentioned her rape confessional and sound all these years. I always kind of figured was at least about narcissistic abuse and maybe more. Um, and just kind of, you know, this, this breaking, breaking free and, uh, just so basically what happened is she did this and yeah, I mean, there was the whole hot chick writhing while playing the piano thing. I mean, at first, I guess, you know, guys being guys, it's hard to take seriously. And then you start listening to what she's saying. And I guess it, it takes on some meaning. Now I'll say this uh, about the Amos influence and Amos effect. Uh, she was way better than Sarah McLaughlin, uh, who, you know, desired to cover a lot of the same ground but she did it to much cornier and much more insipid effect. Uh, but Sarah, hey, you know, she co-created Lilith Fair and she wants to save all those abandoned puppies during every commercial break on USA Network. So she gets all the love that Tori probably deserves a whole lot more. Well, Chris, unfortunately, we will always diverge on Tori Amos. But the next band we're going to talk about, we are all we have always been in uh, synchronicity on. Which band is that, Chris? That would be Alice in Chains, which uh, put out at the time uh, was an awesome grunge album, but uh, here 30 years later is just a uh, really incredibly moving uh, all-time heavy metal album and probably the most influential uh, album, at least in terms of all the radio uh what, what would you call it? active rock, I guess, is the genre that there's yeah. a whole, whole lot of people uh, aping Alice in Chains in those days. But we have to talk about this record, which is just remarkable. So, you know, as I talked about a little earlier, uh, the musical form uh, known as grunge hit pay dirt in 1992. Uh, this, as we've discussed in detail during several of our recent episodes, was the culmination of a movement and the laboratory formation of the genre in the bars and clubs of Seattle by a bunch of smart, insanely talented, and in some cases just plain insane rock and roll dudes. In 1990, it would have been really hard to lump the band Alice in Chains in with all of these grunge pioneers that they coexisted alongside with in Seattle. As a reminder, those bands included Green River, Melvin's, Tad, Munhoney, and Soundgarden. At that time, uh, AIC, as we'll call them as an abbreviation, had broken through into the mainstream with the ubiquitous single Man in the Box from their debut album, Facelift. The song was a cooler, weirder version of that brand of thinly compressed recorded metal that had predominated the late 1980s and very, very early 90s. There was no crunch. There were no abrasions. There were no wacky screams and no discernible, sincere torture. Uh, it was more straightforward uh, than you would expect, uh, knowing what we know now. But a lot can happen in two years. Allison Chain's band leader, Jerry Cantrell, uh, during that time befriended the members of Soundgarden and other grunge musicians in that scene and was heavily influenced by uh, the unsettling allure and authenticity of the music. Uh, there also, I think he came into the awareness that maybe being on a major label, 
was tantamount to being, you know, tamped down into the ground and being kind of made somebody's bitch. And so uh, I would say that that metamorphosis first started manifesting itself on the back cover of the fantastic uh, little EP sap in which the members of Alice in Chains piss on their recording contract, uh, which is uh, pretty dang funny. Now, at the same time this musical evolution of Alice in Chains was happening, Lane Staley, one of Hard Rock's most compelling frontmen, uh, fell harder and deeper into heroin addiction, as did other members of the band. Uh, pain, confusion, angst, codependence, reflection, and confession became themes that would dominate the rest of Alice in Chains' tragically brief tenure as a top band. Uh, it's rough to think about all that Alice in Chains endured and how uh, what could have been a hell of a ride uh, so quickly uh, demised. But it also makes me appreciate just how brave and revelatory the band's masterpiece from this year, 1992, Dirt, truly was. Uh, to this day, it is the single loudest record I have ever heard in my life. The guitars explode and rev like the Indy 500. The multi-track vocals cut like razors. The bass reaches the depths of hell. The quietest verses, as on Rooster, which is Cantrell's tribute to his Vietnam War veteran father, set up the most flammable and vicious choruses. Uh, even the simpler, shorter ruminations on death and decay uh, burst into our faces like artillery. Uh, the opening scream and boom of uh, the two and a half minute long album opener, Dem Bones, still makes my heart jump if I don't know it's coming. I mean, and that's a Wayne Staley improvisation, by the way. He just decided <laughs> to have that little scream, like, let's scare the shit out of people listening to our album. Uh, it works. And yet, Dirt is also a gorgeous and mournful album. Uh, its most amazing attribute to me is how it j consistently juxtaposes a mythic sense of doom with so much relatable soul and brutal honesty. Uh, Staley was not af afraid to confront and expose his demons on record. The song titles reveal the mood. Uh, Rain When I Die, Down in a Hole, Sick Man, Hate to Feel, uh, and Angry Chair, and... Staley, clearly a very stick, uh, sick, very sick man at this point, sings his heart out and his ass off. Uh, doesn't matter if Cantrell lays his endlessly ripped off harmony vocals underneath at key times. Staley's work here is one of the most underappreciated under star turns in rock history. I personally find the most wonder, mystery, and pathos in Staley's lyrics and vocal performance on Rain When I Die is the she mentioned and talked about in this song, a lost love that's left him in a delicate near suicidal state, or is it his drug of choice that would eventually kill him 10 years later? Objectively, I think Wood, which appeared on the single soundtrack, and actually it was the album opener of singles. It is the album closer of Dirt, mm -hmm. uh, strangely enough. Uh, I think that Wood, with its lurking bass line and lovely lead licks from Cantrell, and the echoing harmonies and the inherent desperation is the album's best song, objectively. Uh, the heart of the album, though, not surprisingly, is the much revered and painfully re relatable ballad, Down in a Hole, uh, with that epic lyric, I have been guilty of kicking myself in the teeth. 
Well, me too. Well, you too. Staley uh, uh, may have been a rock god, but he also was one of us. And that was kind of an amazing uh, thing. And really, that is what makes Dirt so special. As a postscript uh, to this discussion, a Rolling Stone profile of the band from February 1996 reveals that Staley seemed to have a much easier time dealing with reality in his songs as an artist than he did in, like, you know, actual reality. Uh, So here's an extraordinary quote uh, from John Wiederhorn's uh, article from then. Quote, if I'm staying busy, this is from Staley, quote, if I'm staying busy and if I'm getting my job done and I'm doing things I think are great, then I don't have a problem with anything, you know, he asks. Quote, if I live on just strictly a sugar diet, hey, I like it. He laughs weakly and nervously, then continues. Quote, nobody ever asks meatloaf, what do you eat? Why do you eat so much? Shouldn't you lose some weight? No, he shouldn't. He's fucking meatloaf. He writes songs, he has a great time, and it's none of your fucking business. Maybe he meets eat meatloaf every night, you know, every fucking night, you know. He laughs a bit harder. Quote, people have a right to ask questions and dig deep when you're hurting people and things around you. Staley continues, but when I haven't talked to anybody in years and every article I see is dope this, junkie that, whiskey this, that ain't my title. Like, hey, I'm Lane, nail biter, you know. My bad habits aren't my title. My strengths and my talent are my title. Uh, pretty defensive. Uh, lots of denial there. Yeah. But yeah. but what a compelling guy uh, and uh, who centered uh, so much compelling noise and melody, all of which plumbed the uh, universality of pain and despair. Uh, dirt still makes my jaw fall to the floor, and it still uh, ultimately makes me sad. Well, yeah. What do you got? Yeah, two things. First of all, um, one of the uh, when the album came out, and even to this day, I think uh, a lot of the criticism is on how the lyrics uh, tend to glorify heroin use and heroin addiction. Bullshit! Listen to the lyrics carefully. There is no glorification of heroin. Oh no if way! You, if you listen to this album and and you want to go try heroin afterward. You're either insane or you're probably you're already inclined to be a heroin junkie anyway. Or you're a moron. Um, or you're a moron. Yeah, no. No, this is a dark, dark depiction of the spiral of heroin heroin use. Really, as a junkie as he was at this time, in my opinion, Stanley actually wrote a uh, when he wrote the lyrics to this record or, or, or the songs that he sang, I mean, th- 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 this was a public this is a, 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 a what do you call those? PSA, a public service announcement to not do heroin. Yeah. Listen, listen to the lyrics. It doesn't glorify it at all. It paints it as a really dark, dangerous, evil thing that can trap you. Yeah. And that's what and that's what this album does. It doesn't glorify it. It does the opposite. Um, like you said, you gotta be a moron if you think otherwise. Um, second, one thing about this album that I've always noticed, it has a very, very tense anxious foreboding mood to the record oh yeah something around the corner is gonna get you you know well uh david DeSola, who wrote uh the book alice in chains the untold story it's a very tabloidy title but trust me it's a great book (laughs) um basically the band recorded this album in the spring 
1992 in Los Angeles. Yes, during the riots. Yeah. While the riots were happening, the Rodney King riots, Alice and Chains were in the studio. So what happens when you get a bunch of like, you know, grunge rockers from Seattle in a studio and they can't leave? Because there's a, a, a there, there, there's a, there's a, a there's a locked a police lockdown on the streets because of the rioting. They had a race riot happening. So what happens? They all get fucked up on drugs and record dirt. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I love Alice in Chains' Dirt. Chris, you love Alice in Chains' Dirt album. But you know who was kind of lukewarm about it when it came out in 1992 when he wrote about it in the Village Voice? That's right, our favorite music critic, the Dean himself, Robert Criscow. This is what he has to say about Alice in Chains' Dirt. Quote, A heroin album, take it or leave it, Junkhead certainly isn't ironic and probably isn't fictional either. Crunch, 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 riff, 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 Way harder, louder, and more metallic than Soundgarden ever will be. But the price of this power is that it's also uglier and stupider. The sound of hopeless craving. Sitting here with my books and degrees, well, degree, I very much doubt that if I opened my mind, as resident sick man Lane Staley suggests, that I'd be doing like him, er, the narrator of the song. I'll wait for my own man. Thank you. Chris Gow gives the album a B. And that last reference, I'll wait for my own man, if you're out there, smart music listeners, is a reference to the Velvet Underground's classic track uh, about copping heroin on the street, waiting for the man. <laughs> All right. Okay. What, why is 90, 1992 awesome? Again, uh, our next segment ends to why. Well, baby, all I got is Georgia on my mind. How, just how do the Black Crows follow up a multi-platinum debut album? They do it by producing one of the three greatest Southern rock albums of all time, in this curmudgeon's opinion, with the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, released in May 1992. Now, in a rock landscape before Nirvana and grunge, took over rock radio it's hard for people nowadays to understand how much of a breath of fresh air the black crows were when they emerged in 1990 with their retro fantastic album shake your money maker with obnoxious glam metal being prevalent here was a band who merged righteous boogie woogie classic 1970s rock with classic 1960s r&b soul and created a lean mean bombastic machine of powerful rootsy rock music that no other band at the time could match. They had huge rock radio hits, top 30 pop chart hits, mind you, with the ass-kicking Otis Redding cover, Hard to Handle, and the gorgeous Southern Fried Ballad, She Talks to Angels. Um, With the proverbial world as their oyster, where could the Black Crows go next? They followed their five times platinum debut with the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion. Again, the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion, an album that should be on anyone's short list of the greatest Southern rock albums of all time. And yes, for those of you questioning, the Black Crows do count as Southern rock. 
They're from Atlanta, Georgia, and they played blues, country, soul-infused, rootsy rock and roll. All right, y'all? All right. So here we go. George Draculius, George Draculius, who produced their first album, returned to produce the second one. But man, oh man, Southern Harmony sounds nothing like Shaker Moneymaker. Um, the latter was sleek and made to sound perfect for the radio. Southern Harmony, on the other hand, was a growling, nasty bulldog of a record with a band sounding live in the studio and reaching out from the speakers to grab you by the jugular. Um, Rich Robinson's and Mark Ford's guitar riffs rage with a rawness that wasn't common in traditional Southern rock. Uh, the gospel quotient was raised thanks to the presence of an actual gospel choir on almost every track. Uh, lead singer Chris Robinson, having already established himself as a vocalist by being a bit of a cross between Otis Redding and Humble Pie's Steve Marriott, uh, goes full-on Southern gospel preacher mode, erasing any of the whiteness in his voice by fully embracing the rich tradition of Southern African-American soul singers from the 1960s, such as Redding, James Brown, and Wilson Pickett, to deliver one of the most astounding vocal performances by a white rock singer ever put on record, and I'll challenge anyone to say otherwise. Um, none of this would mean anything if the songs weren't any good. And the songs that the Robinson brothers crafted for Southern Harmony were the best they'd ever written and arguably the greatest they ever would write. Uh, the album didn't produce any singles that hit the top 30 of the pop chart, but the band did break a record at the time with having four songs from the same album hit number one on the modern rock radio chart. The first of these, Remedy, has one of the most recognizable riffs in all of 1990s rock, those unbelievable gospel backing singers again, and a funky swagger that the Rolling Stones had abandoned long before. The second single and second straight rock radio number one, Sting Me, is one of the greatest album opening tracks in rock history and sounds like any classic stomping Southern soul single from the 1960s Stax catalog except beefed up on steroids and those raging guitar riffs again. Um, the third straight number one rock radio single, Thorn in My Pride, starts off as a country-tinged acoustic ballad, a la She Talks to Angels, but progresses into a straight-up gospel song with Chris Robinson's stirring vocals meshing with the backup singers in one of the album's most moving moments. Um, Hotel Illness, the fourth straight number one rock radio single, rolls along with a shuffle that blends country and blues rock. When you get to the three songs that work almost as a segueing suite uh, 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 in the albums, uh, toward the album's end, Black Moon Creeping, No Speak, No Slave, and the heavenly soaring gospel rock of My Morning Song, there's no escaping the fact that this is one of Southern Rock's all-time greatest statement albums with its undeniable and unbeatable blend of dirty-as-fuck blues rock, funky soul, gospel-tinged pathos in the lyrics, and hot-rocketed to the moon with a blast of authentic Southern gospel. If you were a loyal rock radio listener in 1992, it must have been jarring to hear this groovy, soulful, 
bombastic, righteous Southern rock amidst all the grunge madness and uh, the onslaught of Metallica and Guns N' Roses singles. Um, Nevertheless, only the fourth golden age of rock, and in particular, this streak from 1991-1997 that uh, we are covering in this series, only this age could provide such a rich depth and a variety of rock stylings with countless bands and artists hitting their commercial and artistic peaks at the same fucking time. As far as legacy goes for the Black Crows, the Southern Harmony and Musical Companion was the last time that that tired old warhorse known as Southern Rock would give us a timeless classic. If Southern Rock started with the Allman Brothers and Creedence Clearwater, Clearwater Revival and hit its peak with early Leonard Skinnerd, and then hit a nadir with more middling, mediocre acts like the Charlie Daniels Band, The Outlaws, and Molly Hatchet, then the Black Crows did two things that were monumental. First, they brought everything that was good about classic 1970s Southern rock into the 1990s in a package that a wide spectrum of music fans could appreciate and love. And second, They created a masterpiece that, in this curmudgeon's opinion, is one of Southern Rock's three most essential recordings alongside Leonard Skinner's first album, pronounced Leonard Skinner, and the Allman Brothers' Live at the Fillmore East album being the other two. Chris? Yeah, that that's a pretty fair assessment of the the three uh, at the top. Uh, I do want to challenge you or ask you a question on something you just said about this sort of being the uh, the outer edge of the Southern Rock uh, uh, thing. Uh, would you consider Drive By Truckers and or My Morning Jacket Southern Rock? Because uh, to me, At Dawn is a Southern Rock record. Yeah, I would. I would. I I, I, I agree. They are. But as much as I love those bands, I don't think At Dawn's as good as the Southern Harmony. <laughs> no, I didn't say that, but I think, but yeah. it's, it's a really yeah. fucking great record. And so, and, it then, is. and then remember there was that both happened. Oh, two Oh three, when you had Southern rock opera by drive by truckers. And then yeah, that's true. That's true. And then my morning jackets at dawn with, and you're right. You're and right. then, yeah. and then I've always argued, and I might be the only person on earth that argues this Beck sea change is very Southern rock influenced. And so, uh, so that I don't call that, I don't call that a Southern rock album though. Well, that's I mean, very, that, that, that's very English folk influence, very yeah. Drake influence. Well, but like song, songs like the Golden Age. I mean, that's yeah. that's that's a Southern rock song. But anyway, I di- I digress. But uh, anyway, just a couple of thoughts on this record. Uh, Chris Robinson is in very rarefied air as a blue-eyed uh, white soul singer. I think that Joe Cocker and Van Morrison are the only two that yeah. are probably on uh, that level, and I think that was extraordinary. Um, I still get incredibly excited every time I hear Remedy, uh, yeah. e- either on my mixes or on the radio. I think yeah. that that is just a perfect uh, rock song that is just the epitome of Boogie Woogie. Uh, the guitar licks, the solo and the guitar licks, like you said, the back, the backing vocals, and there's just a swing and a sway to that record. Uh, let us not forget to give props to Steve Gorman, who was yeah. a really fantastic drummer. Um, and he kind of proves that percussion. I've always been a big fan of Thorn in My Pride, which yeah. uh, probably was not recorded live in the studio, but sure as hell has that uh, feel. Uh, yeah. That kind of just sort of almost um, a, a bunch of guys sitting around stoned and just kind of getting in touch with their feelings uh, in a in a communal sense. 
but yeah. just kind of an amazing uh, uh, piece uh, of work. And then, you know, you look at the crows uh, back then, it's kind of funny that uh, they came up with this really great record that, you know, had this sort of honesty to it. And in terms of its focus and its thematic strands and its purpose, a sobriety to it, yeah. which is which is ironic because the more you read about the history of the crows, that that band was anything but sober uh, during <laughs> during this period. Uh, Chris Robinson was on like more drugs than Colombia and like Venezuela combined uh, <laughs> uh, during this period. And then you know obviously Amorica, which you know you get you know that, and then th- uh, three snakes and one charm. That becomes pretty plainly obvious that the drugs were taken over. But uh, here, uh, you know, as a moment in time, uh, this was a great band. Uh, strange but true. Uh, they were signed to. I think it was called what Def Jam American uh, by Rick Rubin. Yeah. Yep, uh, yep. So Rick Rubin signed them, and uh, true story, uh, he initially wanted to rename the band the Cobb County Crows, spelled in all K's. I know. So, so yeah. he wanted to name this band the KKK. Uh, <laughs> thank God that didn't happen. Uh, for what it's worth, George Draculius was kind of uh, he was like Rubin's engineer. And so it was yeah. kind of, you know, like Ruben was more of a guru than he is an actual producer, whereas like right. Draculius did a lot of the engineering on some of those records. Yeah. And so, you know, fabulous, uh, fabulous stuff. And so, yeah, no, good call. I mean, this, I, I the summer of 1992, especially, I just was in love with this record. Especially like my morning song. I mean, I would, that riff would just be stuck in my head yeah. all friggin' day, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, just uh, pretty amazing. So uh, there you go. Cool. All right. So now we go from uh, immortal classic Southern rock to very forward thinking, not just rock, but rock presentation on stage by, at the time, the biggest band in the world. Yes. Yes. And so we go from uh, unrelenting authenticity to uh, intentionally ironic artifice. Uh, So uh, you too, we talked about them in the last episode for 1991. They released what I really truly think is one of the 10 greatest albums ever made, Octung Baby. And so they're going to tour on this. Well, uh, there's some context here that uh, births the uh, tour uh, known as Zoo TV. Uh, There had never been anything like it and there'll never be anything like it again probably because it was so goddamn expensive and they're lucky that they actually made a profit or broke even on it. And so here is uh, some information and my take on Zoo TV. So social media and viral video, I have come to believe, are the greatest codified forms of insanity ever invented by man. Keeping up with the Joneses, hot takes, the distractions of here, there, and everywhere, garbage people becoming garbage celebrities because they have the gift of making stupid videos to attract bored, isolated people with low self-esteem. That good-looking girl eats Tide Pods. Hey, I should too. That's cool. And then there's all the misinformation and all the weaponized disinformation. Uh, Stare at it all long enough, and you can lose your identity and the ability to focus on the things that matter. I'd be a hypocrite if I said I wasn't always buckling under the weight uh, of the Internet's bullshit influence at times myself. Uh, Now, you two frontman Bono and Brian Eno, uh, forever boundary pushers and artistic visionaries, saw this kind of thing coming 30 years ago. 
Now, remember, it was during the early part of the 90s that cable television, radio shock jocks, infomercials, multimedia art, televangelism, live satellite interviews with world leaders, low-frequency cable access radicalism, porn on DVD, supermodel daydreams, and lots of other forms of media junk became pervasive. And it was all the precursor to what we're living through now. Uh, Together, uh, these long-term collaborators, uh, Bono and Eno, they took all of this stuff, which bemused them and bewildered them during the making of Octone Baby, uh, and it shaped and molded, uh, they took and they did the shaping and molding into the most extraordinary concert experience in rock history. Uh, in 1992, uh, on, I believe it was February 29th in of all places, Lakeland, Florida, Zoo TV went live and it stayed on the concert stage air for almost two years, lasting beyond Octung Baby and extending into U2's next record, uh, the marvelous and underrated Zuropa. Suddenly, the super serious Christ incarnation version of Bono from the late 1980s startlingly and suddenly became the fly. He was that glib asshole in bug-eyed shades who produced a super busy cacophony of television broadcasts and other bells and whistles, such as over-the-top painted cars that buzzed and mesmerized while the band blasted out magnificent performances of their songs. Some nights, Bono and actually most nights during the encore, at least in the first few legs, became Mirrorball Man. Uh, Mirrorball Man was a flamboyant, insincere preacher man in a gleaming silver cowboy outfit. Uh, By the tour's end, he spent some nights as Mac Fisto, an ethnic Dante's Inferno joke at a time when ethnic cleansing was gripping the former Yugoslavia. Now, all of this was glorious, big-budget satire, which most nights kicked off, interestingly enough, with a blast of the disposable heroes of hypocrisy, uh, a.k.a. Michael Franti's uh, first uh, uh, band, the one that broke him. Uh, and that proved to be uh, both entertaining and devastating. Now, some nights uh, it proved to be moving and profound. Now, that was m- most personified by Bono's nightly attempts during this tour to call President George H.W. Bush at the White House. This is like the first half of this TV run. He would try to call George H.W. Bush every night. He would go through the White House operator, and it was just you know part of the part of the shtick of the show. Uh, I think there was probably a sincere hope that they would actually get Mr. Bush on the phone because Bush even made reference to it in a press conference uh, during that time. Uh, there were also, at one point, when they did a show in England, uh, there was a really bold, ballsy appearance on stage by the author Salman Rushdie, uh, who had been in hiding for some time as a result of a fatwa put on his head uh, by the Iranian uh, ayatollahs for the alleged blasphemy of his novel, The Satanic Verses. And uh, this was all done in literally a million-dollar stage setup that took 40 hours to construct on each tour stop, at least in North America. This shit took $125,000 a day to produce, proving that it is good to be the biggest band in the world. Uh, (laughs) Coincidentally, uh, the Wikipedia page for Zoo TV is right up there uh, with the pages for the Coen Brothers film Barton Fink and A History of Christian Restorationism. 
uh, among uh, my the most comprehensive and entertaining pages on there that I have ever read. Uh, <laughs> I told you, yeah, yeah, de- definitely go check out the Zoo TV Wikipedia page. Uh, also, the uh, the Michael Jackson uh, Victory Tour uh, write up is really entertaining too, <laughs> and really well done. So now, uh, just basically, just casually, and some folks our age will remember the most famous stuff from this uh, tour. Uh, Bono uh, during the set. Uh, every night uh, would, as the band was performing even better than the real thing, he would perform his part singing uh, into a camcorder and the images, which would, that those would be broadcast to the audience via the large screens behind him. Uh, I remember this being incredibly engaging and even moving as I watched a clip of one of these performances on MTV back then, I believe it was the video music awards in 1992. Now, for just for uh, shits and giggles, here it was the set list of the first show of that tour, like I said, which was February 29th, 92, in Lakeland, Florida, at the Lakeland Arena. And this actually was the set that they basically used on every single show. There was no diversity. They didn't, you know, it wasn't yeah. like Pearl Jam or the Dead. So they yeah. did a run through all of the stuff from uh, uh, Octung Baby. You know, I'm not going to name all those songs. It's most of that album. And then it becomes a greatest hits set, basically. Angel of Harlem, Satellite of Love, uh, Bad, and All I Want Is You, which is a snippet, uh, Bullet the Blue Skies, uh, Sky, uh, Running to Stand Still, Where the Streets Have No Name, Pride in the Name of Love, and I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. And then in the encore, they would do Desire with a snippet of Not Fade Away at the end, Ultraviolet Like My Way, which is my favorite song on Octone Baby, with or without you with a snippet of shine like stars. And then finally love is blindness. Interesting that that's how they always ended those shows. And then they would, I think they would tack on 40, uh, some of these nights as well, which is kind of their standard standard concert closer. Now, uh, the tour was a tremendous artistic and commercial success that reinforced the notion that rock and roll in the cultural and aesthetic sense was as much of a revolutionary visual art form as it was a musical one. Yet, this was so singular and so electrifying and so unique and so moving, it really could never be duplicated. But the band itself, U2, made the mistake of trying to do just that later in the decade by going even bigger and even grander and even more ridiculous uh, on tour in support of 1997's undercooked but also kind of underrated album Pop. But... That attempt to relive their Zoo TV glory proved to be an absolute disaster. Uh, that tour is most famous, actually, for a gigantic lemon prop. And sometimes the prop tells the story because I don't bump the tour was a giant lemon. Uh, the fallout from the tour, uh, which very nearly left the band broken in ruins, uh, probably explains uh, U2's decision afterward to return to a more orthodox, less electronic idiom starting in 2000 with uh, All You Can't Leave Behind. No matter, though, we will always have Zoo TV and Octung Baby and Zoo Ropa uh, era U2. Long live Mac Fisto, baby. So, yeah. what do you think? Another, th- another thing to, uh, to, to consider during this time, um, U2 did not have corporate sponsors on this Zoo TV tour. Yeah. No corporate sponsor. They didn't start getting corporate sponsors until like in the 21st century. Yeah. So uh, th- this came out of their pocket, you know, mm-hmm. and the fact that they made a profit out of it, you know, because the album was such a success and the shows were amazing. Um, and and the, the, the show itself, the, the, the presentation 
of the of the, of the show. It's kind of hard for people to realize to now to go back then in the early '90s and to to realize just how fucking just unreal it was to see you two do this kind of music, this octung baby, you know, disco, funky, electronic, sleek shit with this incredible conceptual stage show about mass media saturation. It's like, it's like, it's like seeing Taylor Swift going from what she is now to like typo negative style goth metal with a conceptual stage presentation about immigrants at the border. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? it's just, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And, and also you got to consider too, that at least in the last like third of this tour, I mean, this is uh, also uh, Adam Clayton hitting his bottom as an alcoholic. Yeah. And, which yeah. Al- almost fucked them, fucked them up almost right. like destroyed the band. And so that, so yeah, but between all the financial burden and all the, you know, running the thing and, uh, you know, basically, uh, you never knew what was going to happen. There was like potential for things to get all kinds of goofy, uh, because of what they were doing. It was kind of, you know, a, a high wire act, not in terms of the set, but in terms of the shtick, um, that, uh, you, you have to kind of admire. It was really gutsy. And yeah, I mean, totally. Yeah. And again, you know, like the pop tour is like, okay, we took the risk once we succeeded, we took the risk again, we failed. And so, you know, you, you flip it and then eh, what the heck you learn your lessons and you move on. But yeah, yeah, be that as it may, we, it is good stuff. And so there you go. Uh, Zoo TV, uh, unbelievable, uh, satirical, uh, genius, uh, presentation of, uh, what was happening to the world at that time. On this episode, Chris and I delved into 1992. On the next episode, the fourth golden age of rock moves into 1993. Nirvana and Pearl Jam are by now the two biggest and most important American bands of the decade, and the pressure is on to deliver worthy follow-up albums to their era and generation-defining breakthrough albums. It was a fantastic and watershed year for women in rock as well, with releases by Liz Fair, PJ Harvey, The Breeders, and more. Depeche Mode, Get Dark and Druggy, with an underrated masterpiece. The early rumblings of Britpop start to be heard, with releases by Blur, Suede, and the debut album by a particular band named Radiohead. And a new breed of super-aggressive metal starts to make its presence felt thanks to albums by Pantera, Sepultura, and Tool. Join us as we relive the year in rock of 1993 as the fourth golden age of rock continues. So, yeah, we go from, like, what's happening to the world to, like, off world. <laughs> yeah, basically what was happening in a basement somewhere in California with a bunch of like 20-year-old like ridiculously uh, uh, stoned motherfuckers. Uh, yeah. yeah, what you get is the band Caius practically inventing stoner metal with their classic Blues for the Red Sun. All right, now, if grunge had a less popular younger brother that younger brother would be stoner rock or stoner metal. And uh, any discussion of stoner metal 
starts with Caius and their pioneering 1992 album, Blues for the Red Sun, the record that opened the door for a slew of stoner metal bands to follow later in the decade, such as Monster Magnet, Fu Manchu, and Corrosion of Conformity. Um, The Melvins may have something to say about the birth of stoner metal, but considering that their guitarist and main guy, Buzz Osborne, was for the most part straight edge, <laughs> and the mem- and the members of Caius were, shall we say, defiantly not straight edge. <laughs> I I feel safe in putting this tag on Caius. Um, for you listeners out there, you may be asking, what is stoner rock or what is stoner metal? Well, basically, you take the groovy, down tuned heavy metal of the nineteen seventies and merge it with the spacey, heavy, psychedelic rock of Hawkwind. From the, um, or in other words, if Black Sabbath and Hawkwind had a child, that child would have been Caius. Mm-hmm. Um, Good call. It's a, fitting, it's a fitting description because 1973 was the peak year for both Sabbath and Hawkwind, and it was also the year that Caius leader and guitarist Josh Homme was born. Hami, of course, would go on to greater fame as the main guy from Queens of the Stone Age. If you do the math, this meant Hami was just 19 years old when Blues for the Red Sun came out. Uh, Caius originated uh, in Palm Desert, California, and Palm Desert is exactly as it sounds. A tiny desert town, 120 miles east of Los Angeles, with pretty much nothing to do in there, but stay away from the stifling heat by getting drunk and or stoned and listen to music. Hmm. Stoner metal indeed. Uh, The band, these guys, they were high school teenagers when they got together under the name Katzenjammer and later Sons of Caius, named after a zombie monster from the advanced Dungeons and Dragons board playing game. (laughs) Yes, they they were those kinds of guys. (laughs) okay yeah yeah you know perfect right uh right around their senior year they self-released a self-titled ep in 1990 that uh didn't do anything however it was as a live band that they started to generate attention uh shortening their name to just caius the band became locally known for having wild desert parties yes as in right in the middle of the desert desert parties where the band would hook up their gear and instruments to electric generators and play for long hours staring uh, starting in the evening and sometimes lasting into the early morning the shows actually they were more like gatherings uh they were always free and open to family friends and anyone in the palm desert area who wanted to have a good time throw in copious amounts of alcohol marijuana and lsd and you had the sort of happening that makes your curmudgeons wish they had grown up in a Southern California desert rather than Miami or Syracuse, New York. No shit. <laughs> Regardless, man, imagine being a high school student going to these shows. God damn it. Yeah. With a bunch of dudes who named their band after a Dungeons and Dragons game. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm really envious of those motherfuckers. Yeah, for sure. Oh. Regardless. The desert shows honed Caius's chops and strengthened them as a band. As Josh Homme said in a 1994 interview, quote, there are no clubs here. You can only play for free. If people don't like you, they'll tell you. You cannot suck. 
Dolly Records, D-A-L-I, as in Salvador Dolly, a small but well-funded independent label uh, formed by former Capitol Records A&R, a former Capitol Records A&R executive and the founder of Rhino Records, uh, signed the band and then funded and released their debut album, Wretch, in 1991. If you get a chance to listen to the album, you'll find that it sounds very much like a demo. That's because, essentially, it was a demo. (laughs) Uh, Six of the 11 songs are re-recorded versions of tracks dating back to their Sons of Caius days, and the five newer songs were still works in progress. Nevertheless, the label wanted the record and Caius as a band out there, (laughs) And and when the album failed to sell or gain much critical notice, the band hunkered down with producer Chris Goss, uh, to work on what Hami and his bandmates considered to be their true debut album. When Blues for the Red Sun emerged out of Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, California, or Van Nuys, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, yeah. in the uh, summer of 1992, it was a monolithic, psychedelic metal monster of ear-shattering proportions and ball-crushing ambition. Uh, It was as if the 1980s never happened and heavy metal skipped an evolutionary step by going straight from the titanic 1970s sounds of Black Sabbath and Deep Purple straight into the early 90s grunge wormhole of the Melvins and Soundgarden. Uh, If Josh Homme's guitar being tuned to drop D tuning wasn't heavy or low enough, he plugged it directly into a bass amplifier for extra heaviness. Uh, combined with Nick Oliveri's rumbling bass and Brant Bjork's powerhouse John Bonham-esque drumming, Caius created a new metal sound that had one foot in the past and another in a future of unheard of psychedelic heaviness. Um, this was music specifically created to be the soundtrack of long hours staring into a lava lamp while being stoned out of your mind. That's what this music was. Um, Album opener Thumb opens with a riff so bludgeoning and thundering that it seems as if God's balls themselves are playing it. All before the track ends in a drums-led breakdown so maniacal it sounds like drummer Bjork is about to fall off of his drum stool. Uh, Green Machine takes things to another gear with one of Hami's most memorable riffs and a high-octane groove so sharp and intense that it all amounts to the track being essentially Deep Purple's Highway Star for the 1990s. Uh, The song itself got airplay on select regional uh, rock radio stations and got some exposure on both MTV's Headbangers Ball and 120 Minutes shows. Uh, 50 Million Year Trip, great song title. Yeah, I love it. (laughs) Shows the young band's precocious chops with its unusual time signature and uh, multi-sectioned and layered guitar parts before dissolving into an extended guitar solo jam not too far from Grateful Dead territory. Uh, Instrumentals like Molten Universe and uh, Apothecary's Weight do nothing to dissuade the Black Sabbath on acid comparisons. Yep. A compliment if there ever was one, of course. And uh, Alan's Wrench hijacks hardcore punk's energy and speed to create an audacious amalgam of thrash punk while maintaining the band's now patented uh, psychedelic me- metal. Uh, 
it boggles the mind and leaves most contemporary bands attempting this stuff in the dust. The album ends with the swirling, apocalyptic, brain-frying, groove-laden <laughs> space metal of Mondo Generator, led by a Hami channeling his inner Jimi Hendrix with his interstellar wah-wah pedal-driven lead lines and bassist Nick Oliveri shouting something incomprehensible through a megaphone. Does it matter? Hell no. No, who it's cares? Heavy, it's heavy, it's trippy, and it grooves, the latter being one of Caius's most underrated aspects. Uh, music critics, especially those in the heavy metal spectrum, drooled over the album, giving it near-unanimous praise as an instant and pioneering metal classic, which it absolutely was. The album also garnered a word-of-mouth cult following for the band. Overnight, Caius became one of the most respected bands in all of heavy metal, and they spent the rest of the year being basically everyone else's opening act. They opened for Danzig. They opened for White Zombie. They opened for Faith No More. They even, oh, opened, for, they even opened for Metallica oh, that on, a nine, awesome. on a nine-day tour of Australia in early 93. Oh, gosh. Oh, <laughs> man. Uh, I'm, now, now I'm jealous of them people that were in that audience. Wow. Metal up your ass. Jesus. Yeah, no shit. Uh, unfortunately, all the critical acclaim, cult adoration, and respect from their peers didn't result in album sales. If the Velvet Underground were the greatest band of the 1960s to not sell records, and Big Star were the greatest band of the 1970s to not sell records, and Husker Du were the greatest band of the 1980s to not sell records, then the 1990s distinction has to go to Caius. How this band, whose music really wasn't that far at all, from the heavy grunge spectrum of Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, how they didn't cross over to rock radio success is still to this day beyond me. They were inventive. They had hypnotic riffs. Singer John Garcia had a knack for singing with melody and hooks, and their drugged-out space metal was always augmented by generous helpings of radio-friendly, bluesy groove. I mean, seriously, what the fuck wasn't there to like? You know, I mean, hearing inferior cookie cutter bands like Bush and Candlebox <laughs> get heavy, heavy radio and MTV rotation must have made this band's blood boil. Yeah, no shit. Um, the, yeah, seriously, if you're Caius and you're, you're like, you just came out with Blues for the Red Sun and all this shit. And no, Bush is getting airplay. Fuck that. You know, yeah. the critical reaction to Blues for the Red Sun got Caius a major label deal with Electra Records on which they released two unbelievably superb albums, Welcome to Sky Valley in 1994 and And the Circus Leaves Town in 1995. There you go. Anyway, by the end, Josh Homme and John Garcia were the only original members of the band left and interpersonal relations had declined to such a point that they disbanded shortly after And the Circus Leaves Town was released in summer of 95. Hami, of course, went on to guide Queens of the Stone Age to being one of the biggest and best American bands of the noughties. But despite numerous offers to reform and play shows and even tour, Hami is the one member of Caius who to, to this day refuses to reform. No matter, doesn't matter. Because uh, heavy metal went through some growing pains during the fourth golden age of rock with the subgenre having to adjust and change as a reaction to the juggernaut that was grunge. 
um, Rage Against the Machine and Faith No More, who we'll talk about soon, uh, were inverting metal's DNA. However, and certain bands like Pantera and Sepultura were coming around the corner, were crafting a, a nastier, uglier, heavier form of metal. More of the latter to come in the next installment in our fourth Golden Age of Rock series. And Korn's ushering in of new metal was just around the corner. Um, but Kais belongs right there with them as their unique brand of psychedelic metal practically created and set the standard for the stoner metal sound. And Blues for the Red Sun is one of the fourth Golden Age of Rock's essential albums. All right, Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I know. I, I agree. I mean, this, this album's amazing. And uh, Josh Homme really was like a prodigy, wasn't he? I mean, he was like bound yeah. for uh, glory, uh, really. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it is kind of interesting when you hear uh, you know, songs like, you know, uh, 50 Million Year Trip, uh, that you can hear that kind of sensuality, yeah. uh, that druggy sensuality that kind of defined uh, the Queens of the Stone Age, or at least yeah. the album rated R. Uh, right. you, you hear some of that sort of uh, like even it's weird. It's like a sexy proggy prog rock yeah. song. It's it's yeah. weird. Yeah. And so he just had a real uh, gift for that. And so you start seeing it here now to address something. Now, we're referring to this as the first or the pioneering or the, the uh, breakout album for stoner metal. And that begs the question that some people might have. Well, now, wait a second. I recall that there was this album in 1971 by Black Sabbath called uh, Ma- called Master of Reality. My favorite of theirs. Yes, my favorite Black Sabbath album too. Incredible album. Now, here's the difference. Uh, so that album, obviously, you know, I mean, you know, kind of, you know, Children of the Grave and and Into the Void and and just sort of, you know, like basically it's it, it's music to play D and D by and you know and just sort of. You know, and I'm like, sure, and I'm sure the members of Caius played Dungeons and Dragons while listening to Master of Reality. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> but 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 here's the difference. Um, their Black Sabbath had a technical proficiency, and believe it or not, they had a tastefulness to them. Yeah, uh, you know, there was uh, none of what Tony Iommi did, uh, or yeah. or Bill Ward, or even Ozzy was an accident. Uh, they yeah. were uh, very refined very uh, musically attuned, serious band. Uh, despite all of his drug problems, despite all of that, they were like consummately uh, professional. They knew what they wanted to do and they kept in their lane. Um, Caius took that. And like you said, they took the kind of the, the Hawkwind Lemmy uh, wackiness and uh, some of the, the more sort of undergroundy garagey stuff from that era. And then what they did is they just kind of applied that black Sabbath, uh, uh, ethos and that kind of, you know, the, the foundation and they just like wacky, wacky the, the hell up. And, yeah. uh, we're just really, they, it was fearless and, uh, they, they went for it. Um, and they just like took the intensity and like master reality is a really intense record, but they took that intensity and said, well, you know what, we're going to build a ladder, uh, like to the to the heavens, where each step is master of reality, <laughs> and, and they and they kind of yeah. and they kind of took it up there. Uh, and uh, and also, I will say that if you put Green Machine versus Sweet Leaf uh, by miles and miles and miles and miles and miles, I'll take Green Machine. Uh, goofy as hell, but man, does that shit crank. Uh, yeah. So 
so that's really uh, my my take on this. This is uh, Josh Homme and his uh, the genius of his bandmates there in Palm Desert of all places uh, as a uh, forerunner to uh, to the Queens of the Stone Age and the kind of supple, uh, sexy, uh, hard rock that kind of hit the street circa 2000 to 2003. Yeah, well, we go from glorious stoner metal to our final argument for 1992 being such a great year. We're staying in metal, but boy, is it a different kind of metal. Yeah, and I, th- I think this is a pretty uh, excellent uh, spot to end uh, this discussion of 1992 on. Uh, we're talking about Faith No More uh, and their uh, album, and really a kind of a, a really important and uh, groundbreaking record, uh, Angel Dust. Yeah. Uh, and so let's talk about this. Now, we've talked about Faith No More a couple of episodes back in their origin story. They're a Bay Area band uh, that originally had a black lead singer uh, and who left the band and was replaced by a white guy who could do the like black funk thing better and sillier, at least more, you know, more original or uh, more sticky. And so they're coming up and they're experimenting with funk, they're experimenting with punk, metal, uh, all these things. And they're, they're, they're kind of, you know, really just kind of doing their own thing. You know, Roddy Bottom with the, uh, the keyboards, Jim Martin is the kind of the, the orthodox metal guitarist. It's like, what are these guys all doing in the same band? Okay. So anyway, sometimes the most fascinating shit uh, comes after a band actually enjoys its 15 minutes of fame. We talked about it in that episode, and a lot of you will remember that for a while in 1990, uh, Faith No More became a household name probably for about six months in 90 because of the success uh, of the single and the video for the single Epic. You know, what is it, 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 it? You know, a lot of you will remember yeah. with the flopping, yeah. the flopping fish in the video right. uh, at the end. So, you know, and so you get this sort of, uh, you know, this this hard charging blend basically of punk and funk and hip hop and all that. And then you also get an introduction to the cult of personality known as Mike Patton. And you also get the scruffy guitar guy, Jim Martin. Like I said, what, what the hell are these two guys doing in the same band? And so the song was a galvanizer that really formed at that time two camps. Uh, those who those there were there were those who were tickled by the novelty, and then there were the more probing listeners and consumers who gleaned just how fresh and exciting this Bay Area band uh, really was and could be. The former camp eventually went back to listening to Poison and Genesis, and the latter camp remained loyal and witnessed uh, Faith No More's stunning evolution over the next couple of years. To those who paid attention, the arrival of 1992's uh, album Angel Dust was an event and watershed moment that was instantly absorbing. Uh, that album's legacy has only grown stronger uh, in the years since. I know dudes, usually dudes our age, that uh, uh, look at that album as one of the best ever made, or at least their favorite albums are kind of defining, you know, seminal records for their personalities or their rock personalities. So it really does have personal meaning for a lot of Gen Xers. Now Arturo has theorized. Uh, that Faith No More helped lay the groundwork for what we came to call new metal, which is that dizzying, oft annoying rap metal uh, driven by crisp st- uh, staccato guitar lines and drama for days. I never really thought about it now in that way before he suggested the connection. And you know what? He's got a point. So kudos to you, Artie. Thanks, Chris. Kudos to you, Arturo. 
uh, there it really is not much of a stretch to detect the DNA of Faith No More's Angel Dust uh, with uh, within the best work of Corn. Uh, now, a challenge: play Angel Dust's Midlife Crisis, its most well-known song, and Corn's Freak on a Leash, which is the best song from its 1998 uh, breakout record, Follow the Leader. Play those two songs back to back, and the connection becomes a whole lot clearer uh, in terms of you know what some of the stuff that Corn was drawing on as far as influence. Uh, for additional proof, uh, even though Slipknot uh, professes to be more influenced by Slayer, Cannibal Corpse, and other dark metal bands, it strains credulity to suggest uh, that its awesome anthem, People Equal Shit, does not lift some of its groove and attitude from Angel Dust. Uh, you know, I mean, it's pretty obvious. And here's the kicker. Uh, the more I've investigated this in recent weeks, the more I realize uh, how even the worst of new metal appropriates the best bits of angel dust. Uh, Limp Biscuits break stuff might not exist without angel dust. Right. Oh, okay, so maybe that's not the best compliment, but you, you know, you you get you get my drift. Uh, me personally, I will just keep it simple for once, and in analyzing this record and the band and uh, everything else. This is just a fun-ass dynamic collection of one strong song after another. It's a really eclectic affair. The album mixes aggressive, snarling metal tunes like Caffeine and Smaller and Smaller with hypnotic, satiric country waltzes like RV with the amazing and amazingly funny Be Aggressive, uh, possibly one of the most ripped-off songs of all time. Yeah. Uh, the famous cheerleading cor- cheerleader chorus, you know, Be Aggressive, Be, Be Aggressive even found its way into Darren Aronofsky's fucked up druggy danger film, uh, Requiem for a Dream in 2000, yeah. uh, you know, back in 2000. So now here we are 30 years later. Uh, Faith No More, uh, I guess you can say is no more. Their last record was in 2015. But the cult of Angel Dust is large and it is devoted. Uh, the album was really Mike Patton's finest moment as a performer and it earned him the adoration that fueled his continued success with other edgy bands and other novelty bands and other edgy novelty bands like Mr. Bungle, Phantomas, and Lovage. Uh, check out the latter's bizarre covers, uh, a cover of Berlin's Sex Ima, uh, <laughs> which is really funny, produced by Dan the Automator with Mike Patton really hamming it up. Uh, it's wow. a it's a good cheap laugh. I'm, I don't know if you remember this back in the day. I had that record, and I remember you giggling about that. You know, I'm a man. Uh, you know, it's very <laughs> funny. So more importantly, uh, the band and the album uh, served up a unique anger, a sense of irony and a dark sense of fun that as the fourth golden age wound to its end, were all attributes that defined a lot of the stuff that hit the street uh, in, you know, in the latter years of this. I guess that makes this an ideal album to end this discussion of 1992 on. Uh, while the other albums we've discussed weren't normal in the classic sense, they weren't really as weird as this one. But hey, no surprise, surprise, shit got weirder. And as we said goodbye uh, to the early years of the fourth golden age of rock and skipped on our way toward 1999. Uh, Arturo, sounds about right, doesn't it? Yeah, sounds about right. And also one thing to note about uh, Angel Dust Angel Dust also marks the beginning of Faith No More's commercial decline. Yeah, the album didn't. The album didn't sell well. No, um, uh, it, it barely went gold. 
debuted at number 10 in the Billboard chart, plummeted soon afterward. And like all and their two ensuing albums, King for a Day, Fool for a Lifetime in 95, Album of the Year in 97, both flopped immensely. Oh yeah. Uh, and 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 the band soon broke up afterward while they were still doing really well in the UK, which is weird. But yeah, but it's such a great album, such an important, influential record, yet that was it for Faith No More as a, as a commercial rock band on rock radio. They, 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 they were done. They, 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 may, they may as well have been a one-hit wonder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, basically, they, I mean, well, to it, I mean, Falling to, falling in, uh, falling to Pieces did pretty well. Um, yeah. I guess like a one-and-a-half song wonder. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, yeah. like I said, Epic was like the, the Oxygen in like, you know, August of 1990. And like I right. said, you know, it became this big thing and then people moved on. And so, you know, Faith No More was like, okay, you know, we have a chance to, you know, do a big budget record. Uh, and so, you know, let's do, you know, what we, what feels right. And so you come up with this album. It's just, again, these guys, why are they in the same band and how are these songs on the same album? It's, it's pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, you know, it's, not exactly like we talked about in the last album, like Metallica, where it's not like the winners uh, album, you know, it's yeah. an album that winners get to make, but at least, you know, you have a big one, big hit. And at least your A&R folks and your label are taking you seriously enough to give you a shot. And yeah. so <laughs> they took their shot, uh, didn't quite hit the bullseye. And then, yeah, what the fuck, you know, they moved on and, you know, went back to their underground roots and there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. And, yeah, and, sure. and, and, and one thing to note, um, from this record, uh, like uh, from the uh, one of the outtakes of this album was a cover of Lionel Richie and the Commodores' "Easy," uh, done by that made number three in the UK pop charts in '93. Yeah, uh, who, there was somebody else that covered "Easy" here in the states, wasn't there? And I, I might have been. I them, don't know who it was, but I, I, that's, well, they did, and they had a big hit in the UK with it. Yeah, and it actually got some airplay here. I remember that. It actually was really yeah. good. I mean, the uh, the video actually got a little bit of play on MTV. Um, it, mm. it was surprisingly orthodox, too. It was like they played it straight. Yeah. Straightforward yeah. version, yeah. Yeah, hey, go figure. So, And on that note, you know, we, we end our discussion of 1992 with Lionel Richie. Uh, can't slow down. <laughs> just, just can't slow down, baby. And yeah. so uh, that sets the stage for 1993. Uh, we appreciate y'all hanging out with us as always, uh, really proud of this run through, uh, send us your thoughts. Uh, you can hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, and then there's our, uh, proudly, uh, held up, uh, Facebook group invite only. Uh, we'll let you in unless you're like a, like on a, like a, a, a sex offender list. Uh, and, but you can join us there at facebook.com slash curmudgeon rock, uh, really kind of vibrant. And we have, uh, you know, a, a few enthusiastic folks and we would like you to join them. Hey, Hey, now everyone, we'll see you back here in two weeks when 1993 will be our focus as the fourth golden age of rock starts to enter its prime. Don't worry. We won't spend too much time talking about no rain and the B girl but we will revisit the ballad of Kurt and Eddie and talk a little bit about Four Non Blondes. Yes, really. Until then, we bid you farewell. Keep on rocking, and do not say gay at distance.